Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Josh, how are you doing? Hello, Scott Bowman. Well met. Well met indeed. Welcome back to, um, well, Lighten the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, episode two. Today is the 25th of February, 2017, and we're here today to talk about the sign of four, or if you like, the sign of the four. The sign of the four. I know I kept, uh, when I was doing my notes and stuff, do I say the sign of the four or the sign of four? Or SO4, it sounds sound like a chemical like uh, SO4. S- yeah. symbol or something, right? So I, I think we'll just go with the sign of four. The sign of four. I, I'll talk about that when I talk about the publication uh, information. But look, um, before we get started here, it's, I think, real important at the beginning, because this is still technically the beginning of this new series, even though it's not the first episode. Why don't you remind everybody, Josh, of what we're doing and why we're doing it and where we've come from? All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm uh, the BFG, the big friendly giant, uh, so to speak. Um, I am um, living in Ottawa, here in Ottawa, Canada. And uh, you're way over there on the other side of the pond in uh, Scotland, Dumfries to, to be precise. And basically, um, me, uh, the BFG, and, and Scott uh, Bowman... Uh, as, as we call him, uh, he is uh, d- taking on with me a little project. We're essentially uh, analyzing the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Sherlock Holmes tales. And uh, basically, like we did with our James Bond, just a fun analysis, um, observations, uh, modern day comparisons, uh, just kind of just a general survey, I guess you could call it, hey? But a, but a fun survey, a, a, a fun and witty and erudite survey. Erudite. Well, I, I think that would be great if we accomplish that, if we reach that level. I think we can reach – I think we can – no. Perhaps I'm setting my, my uh, ambitions a bit too high there. How about sub-erudite? I think that would be a, 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 a good goalpost. Sub-erudite. Um, is sub-erudite still snobbish? It's kind of it's kind of us as opposed to like you know, uh, people who don't read at all. No, that's that's wrong of me to say. <laughs> Sub erudite means not snobbish, because it, it means that you can laugh and, and not take yourself seriously, which is what we do all the time, right? We never take ourselves seriously, right? Uh, no, no, never. <laughs> See, we're um, laughing. We're laughing at that. That's good. Yeah, exactly. I don't take myself seriously. Not all the time, anyway. No, we we, hit, um, we strike a pretty good balance, I think, between the erudite and the jocular. And, 
you know, both of us are coming from different backgrounds. Um, <clears throat> I studied English and anthropology at university, and I'm a teacher here in Scotland. Josh is a film enthusiast, student, and expert, um, well-read gentleman. We come in from different angles, but we always meet in the middle. I, I would say that's good. We, 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 we always approach a very comfortable detente. Ooh, I, I, I got nothing to match that. So instead, let's just push forward and uh, introduce this story. Yeah, we're going to look at the sign of the Before we floor. go, though, I just want to mention. Okay, um, yeah. I, I got to say, um, I think we really chose our theme song quite well. Uh, it, it has a great kind of mix of like that, uh, I guess, exciting adventure part, part, you know, in those first couple of notes. And then it kind of goes into this quiet kind of like Ready investigatory sort of, uh, what, I don't know, what's the word I'm thinking of? You know more about the musical theory than, than I do. What, what, what would well, you call like that quieter part with the quiet, like, you know, like the pacing little parts in the middle of a, help me here, man. Help me here. I, th I think you just call it the quieter part. I don't, I don't think the quieter need... part. All right. Yeah, well, I mean, then. yeah, I guess that was not any... very erudite as I was hoping for. What was it? No, sorry, man. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think you need to go too much into it, but basically we, um, in, in selecting some music to introduce the show, we uh, we looked at a couple of different options, and some of them were bombastic. Some of them were uh, a little over English. Some of them were too mysterious. And what we settled on was a movement from Gershwin's Piano Concerto in F that uh, starts off kind of, as you say, with that sort of adventurous feeling and then uh, gets a little quiet and suspicious and then finishes again. Plus, we're only looking for something to 45 seconds and... Um, I looked through as much of the Mendelssohn violin stuff as I had to try to match something with the literature, but it just felt better for what we're doing to have a piece of music that kind of represented, sure, you know, detective work and sort of the, um, yes. you know, the, the seediness, but also the adventure and then something that you and I could kind of enjoy. So, yeah, just a little different to our James Bond series. But would Sherlock enjoy it? That's the question. I think you might find the bit part a bit too bombastic and emotional. I think he might like the quiet part, you know, because he can meditate to that, I suppose. Maybe. But at the end of the day, I don't care if Sherlock likes it or not. We liked it. It worked for what we wanted. So, <laughs> you know. I I think he'd probably have the same feelings that he, uh, he felt about uh, Watson's uh, study in Scarlet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, speaking of, um, but before we go any further, speaking of music, um, I've got a couple of different tracks that I'm going to bring into the episode today that kind of suit some of the context we're going to be talking about and some effects and whatnot. So you're going to hear my speaker, um, my trusty little Bluetooth speaker going on and off all day. Um, the reason that we use this speaker instead of uh, cut and paste and files and do stuff in post-production is because it, it allows us to stay organic and a little bit fun. And plus, it also, pro um, well, it, it also keeps me from doing need too much, uh, needing to do too much uh, editing after we're not getting paid for this. Uh, we're not looking to impress the socks out of any producer or, or you know, get ourselves a radio contract. So um, you'll have to excuse the amateur nature of some of this, uh, you know, so, some of the sound inclusions. You're excused. You put a, you 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 put together a good track list most of the time, man. You put hard work in the recording system. So I'll let this one go if uh, if, if 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 some of them do not quite. Meet my palate. 
Oh, well, it's not so much about the taste of the music. I don't care if you like the taste of the music. I'm, I'm sure you and I will use it just <laughs> fine. I'm talking about the uh, interruptions with the Bluetooth signal on and off and turning the speaker on and off. I'm, you know, it is what it is. Oh yeah, the the the, the idiosyncrasies of technology and the and the and the random variables you know that occur when trying to make all this work. Aye. So hey, buddy, how you been doing? You doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing just fine. Working hard and taking some time to you know earning you know to just sit time and relax and you know I mean it's kind of a little bit stressful you know when getting all these things organized and and stuff but I don't find that I find people would say that but I I don't find it so in this case here I look forward to these talks you know like once or twice a month uh, when it, whenever we can have them because it's just a way for us to kind of you know just escape you know from uh, the alternate facts of The sign of the four. Yes, the sign of the four. The second novel of uh, Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, second Sherlock Holmes novel of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh huh. I got some publication information here in the story of the, the of the book itself. Uh, how about I share that? You fly into a nice plot summary, and then we we dig into lighting the pipes. Yeah, lighting the pipes. Indeed, going through our principles, the investigation. The perpetrator, those environs in, in the story, and uh, the supporting casts. Okay, super. Um, well, <clears throat> where to start? Actually, it's pretty easy trying to figure out where to start with this one because the story of the sign of the four starts back in the summer of 1889. Any idea what happened there, Josh, before I get into it? 1889. I'm not... Sorry, sorry, 1899. 18... No, 1889. Yeah, 1889. 1889. Hmm. Well, I believe that uh, The Sign of Four was published uh, a year after A Study in Scarlet. Nope. No, we're um, a couple of years after. Oh, a couple of years after. Okay, so he must have had some books in between then. If I recall my, my biography that we did with Conan Doyle at the time, in the last episode when we did Study in Scarlet, I, I, we only got to like uh, the publication of that book in terms of his life so far. So I honestly, I couldn't tell Hey, what happened in 1889? Not at the moment. Well, I'm, I'm not so interested in what else he might have wrote or what else he was doing. I'm talking about with the Sherlock Holmes story. It was in 1889 that an American publisher, a uh, publisher of Lippincott's magazine named Joseph Marshall oh, yeah, Stoddard. Lippincott. <laughs> yeah, Lippincott. He, uh, Joseph Marshall Stoddard arrives in London. He's looking, basically, okay, the, the gist of it, he's looking to recruit a bunch of British writers for a British edition of this magazine, okay? So he invites Arthur Conan Doyle and Oscar Wilde to the Langham Hotel, okay? Um, the Langham Hotel, how about that? <laughs> yeah, the Langham Hotel, uh, which was later to feature in a couple of different Sherlock stories, apparently. And this <laughs> dinner takes place on the 30th of August. Now, Arthur Conan Doyle described this as a, quote, golden evening. And he recalls really enjoying Oscar Wilde's company and Stoddard's company as well. He found Wilde to be attentive, charismatic, highly, highly interested in the stories of other people, which is always a nice thing, you know, when you meet someone new and they show genuine interest in you. Because a lot of people aren't good listeners. They just kind of wait for their next 
opportunity to talk, and I'm guilty of that myself too occasionally, that when you're having a chat with someone, you just want to get your points in, and maybe you're not paying the best attention. To, yeah, I'm, I, to I'm, I'm like that as well, but I think I, of me, I just get more excited about the topic of conversation. Of and, yeah. And I, and, I, and I know for some reason, I guess it's because a little bit of some, uh, let me a little bit of, you know, development, uh, emotional development, or not emotional, but um, just social development on my part there, in the sense of where if people are talking, and I know what they're going to say. I just don't – I cut them off because I know what you're going to – it's like in my head I'm like, I know what they're going to say. So we can just continue the conversation <laughs> past that part. And uh -huh. that's terrible. Of so, course it's terrible. I'm... Yeah, but we're all, we're, we're all a little self-indulged uh, self in that way. Anyway, yes. um, <clears throat> he recalls really liking that part of Wilde's character and that contributed to it being quite a golden evening. But that attitude towards Wilde would later change when the two met up in London years later. Um, Wilde was – uh, having a pretty successful run of his play, A Woman of No Importance. And at that time, he, he said to Conan Doyle, oh, Conan, you know, blah, blah, blah. Did, did you see my show? Did you see my play? Uh, and he goes, no, I didn't see your play. Um, he goes, but it's nice to see you and blah, blah, blah. We should get together. Oh, you must come see my play. It's glorious. It's genius. I, I've done my best work ever. And I think tooting his horn that much later made uh, Doyle change his opinion of Wilde. But anyway, on this night of the 30th of August, 1899, it was an awesome, awesome experience. Not just because of the company, but because Stoddart commissioned from both men stories for this British edition of Lippincott's magazine. He offered mm. them 100 pounds for no less than 40,000 words. Now, in today's money, 116, 17 years later, no, 120 years later, that's about 12,000 pounds, uh, kind of accounting for inflation, and 12,000 pounds, roughly about 18,000, 19,000 Canadian dollars, okay? That's what you're thinking. So that's pretty good for one story at the time, and 100 pounds in 1889 was much more than Doyle was accustomed to earning from his pen for a year's work. So thus, the sign of four was born, and he wrote it in just two months, which is pretty hmm. incredible if you think about it. Um, I would say so, yeah. And, given that, like, sorry, go ahead. No, just to say, just given in general, you know, the um, two months for a story like that, I, 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 to me, like, it's even despite there's some questionable uh, parts of it in terms of you know post-colonial or colonial attitudes, I should say, compared to our post-colonial attitude we have today, uh, I would say it's probably one of Doyle's strongest works, to be honest. But uh, Two months, that's incredible. Yeah, and interestingly enough, Doyle was one of the only British writers to successfully make the deadline for that British edition of Lippincott's magazine. Wilde did oh, eventually. Oh, Wilde did. He did, well, <laughs> he did. He produced the picture of Dorian Gray from that commission, that Stoddart commission. So he also produced a story oh, wow. that was very well remembered. You can see, I guess, why in terms of literary history, that's quite an interesting evening, the 30th of August, in that little but luxurious hotel in London. Um, there seems to be kind of like this um, late Victorian lit, lit, uh, literature. I don't know if you're familiar with the um, with um, the, the, the comic book writer, although he hates to be considered one. Uh, Alan Moore, a British comic book writer, he's well known for writing the, uh, the Watchmen graphic novel. Uh, but, oh, I know the but titles, mostly, yeah. Yeah. A, a, a mostly famous one that he did it was called The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, yeah, which so was I'm made into that, a yeah. terrible, terrible, terrible adaptation. I think that was like Sean, Co Sean Connery. Oh, yeah. I remember uh, that now. Connery wearing a fedora, wasn't he? In like a raincoat yeah. or something. Yeah. Alan Quartermain. Oh, yeah, right. 
Not, Anyways, uh, not to be confused. Gentlemen, if you anyone recalls the story or the film, it basically, and, and I guess much like a, another series that came out just uh, recently, and that 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 ended a television series, uh, Penny Dreadful. Uh, they both deal with taking Victorian characters uh, from those novels, like the the horror stuff, like you know, from Bram Stoker and uh, Mary Shelley and Robert Louis Stevenson and Sherlock Holmes and other people like Quatermain and and whatnot. And it's just really interesting that like this period in the late 1890s is the this Victorian era. And if you look at like steampunk, you know, in in that's so so popular. In I guess in nerdy crowds these days, is this moment this moment where Sherlock Holmes was writing these story where um, Arthur Conan Doyle was writing these stories, is is I think is is very important because it's so influential even up today in terms of modern literature. How influential? Well, I guess that no, I'll save that question for a later later episode. Um... Yeah, I don't, yes. don't want to talk about that. I'll save that one. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in what we'll you're saying we'll about the influence of this period in literary Steampunk. history, because this particular period of literary history, as you correctly cite, was greatly influential, not just for Conan Doyle, but it also um, you know, marked the advent of Dracula and Bram Stoker's rise, if you think of it that way. And pardon the pun, that was a good vampire joke. I made a good vampire joke there. Sorry, I had to toot my horn, but Bram Stoker's rise? Come on, that was <laughs> yeah, good. Rise, yeah, good, good, good one. Like anyway, it. anyway, right. <laughs> moving on, moving on. There's this, <laughs> there's, there's this apocryphal story that holds that Conan Doyle's knowledge of London in this story, and well, ostensibly, I suppose, in uh, in uh, studying Scarlet as well, came not from his extensive travels because he was an Edinburgh boy who hadn't spent too much time in the city really, but um, came from a post office map, and that. <laughs> actually is true. Uh, Doyle, he was very proud of that fact, and he wrote as much to a couple of his friends, including Stoddart, in saying, um, you know, I, I hope you, you find this interesting, and um, <clears throat> my knowledge of London, basically the streets and all that stuff came from, not not exclusively, it can't, it can't be exclusively, I don't know as much about his life and if he was in London, but yeah, he certainly used a post office map to cite a lot of streets, and I guess that's not that strange, is it? Like, no, and I was, if you recall, when we're doing the study in Scarlet uh, last time around, I mentioned how when Conan Doyle was writing um, uh, a study in Scarlet, the, the London that he envisioned has a lot of Edinburgh in it. Actually, yes, you did say that, yeah. And I, I mentioned how, like Baker two two one Baker Street, like there is no uh, ha- like building on Baker Street that resembles the one that he described. There's no like with the, with the with the bay windows in the front and stuff like that. They just they just did not exist. And he was more or less describing one like in Edinburgh. Hmm. Interesting. Um, when this book was published, on its first appearance, getting back to something you said a few moments ago, it was titled The Sign of the Four, which followed directly the description of that fatal symbol of murder in the story. After several second serializations, uh, the title just became The Sign of Four. But like it's... No one likes grammar Nazis. No, no I know. Nobody does. Um Peter punctuation. <laughs> Notwithstanding. Anyway, <laughs> like its predecessor, I guess you could call Studying Scarlet its prequel, kind of. Um, the novel wasn't an overnight success, and the Sherlock stories that were published in The Strand after 1890 were those responsible for making him really immortal in literature. But yes. this story was published 
In February of 1890, one critic of the time wrote, quote, the best story I ever read in my life, end quote. <laughs> now, <laughs> I, I wanted to say that because, yeah, it's, it's, it's a platitude that is it's a little exaggerated. But at the same time, if you think about Victorian society and advent of the printing press and the importance of literacy, which is when literacy among the commoners really, really boomed, um, you've got a lot more people reading then. And I don't know if this would have been as accessible literature to them as some other stuff, but there might be a lot more in that critic's simple, exaggerated review than, than we, you give credit for at first. Because by our standards today, we read, we watch television, we see all kinds of stuff, and we've had books around and the promulgation of literature for years and years and years and years. So... Saying something like the best book I ever read is a throwaway comment, but maybe in a society where reading was a lot more privileged, uh, a lot more taken a lot more seriously, this review would have held a bit more water. Yeah, I yeah, I, I think back then it was just it wasn't even really hyperbole. It was almost just an advertisement to go pick the book up, and yeah. I think no yeah. one. But at the same time, though, you had literary critics. I mean, if you recall, like Ben Johnson and. And people yes. like that were very were very critical of Shakespeare, even 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 at the time, like about fifty years, you know, later after mm -hmm. after his work. So mm -hmm. I just think literary criticism wasn't as popular. It was more of in the academic circles uh, back then than it is today. Yeah, well observed. Anyway, in two thousand and fourteen, just a few years ago, the Guardian newspaper here in the UK, in an article written by Robert McCrum, ranked this novel number twenty six on a top list of 100 novels of all time and that's not not just in the british tradition but in the english language you know the western tradition of literature this number 26 out of 100 we can talk about the merits of that maybe at the end of the show but i found that quite quite startling really i suppose maybe because of its genre perhaps i can see that kind of inclusion but as mm. and maybe that was just representative of the genre itself you got to wonder the criteria that that person used to put that list together. Yeah, totally. And of course, a newspaper list like that is not—it's uh, not exposed. The criteria is not exposed, right? They're not—they're not talking about lighting the pipes, are they? Do not talk about lighting the pipes at all. No. Anyway, look, buddy, that's um, lighting little, the gas lights, maybe. Uh, maybe a little whistle stop, but I don't think I need to say any more about the publication of that or how the story came along. Um, that's it. We've got uh, the American publisher of Lippincott's Magazine to thank. Who knows if uh, Conan Doyle would have ever, on his own steam, come back to Sherlock Holmes after the um, <clears throat> after the study in Scarlet? Probably would have, but the end of this novel would also suggest that we've got um, an ending uh, that might not be returned to as well. But hey, I will not go any further into it. I'm going to turn over to you now for the plot summary. Yes. All right. And just to regard what you just said about, you know, the ending that may not be continued. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that because uh, there's definitely a kind of a feeling that like is the sign of four like the final Sherlock Holmes story and uh, the final chronolog in the chronological canon of that story world. Is it the final story, the final chapter or is it an, or is it just simply there was all these cases in between uh, study in Scarlet and sign of four that took place. But at the same time, there's, there's indicators in the book that this was the, the next case after a study in, in Scarlet. 
So it's a little confusing in that regard, and I think that'll make for some fun uh, discourse. It should, yeah. But moving on, uh, let's get into the outline of uh, of the sign and uh, of the sign of the four, or sign of four, or how I learned to not be a grammar Nazi. Anyway, um, <laughs> so we begin with our man Holmes making some tracks on his left arm as he shoots up his seven percent solution. So just a correction from last week, I mentioned the thirteen motherfucking percent solution. What I meant to say was the 7% solution. So that kind of makes me look like an ass. And so I just wanted to correct myself uh, on, on that matter. Because I wonder what 13% solution, solution would do. I would say Holmes would probably – I would say Watson would have his work cut out for him. That's all I have to say. Yeah, if his military doctoring would come in handy. I, I would say so, yeah. I think Holmes would definitely um, be in a, better, in a worse situation. Um he detests idleness, but uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't be able to escape it then. That's all I have to say. <laughs> so he's waiting for some excitement, um, i.e., a new case. So enter Miss Mary Morstan, a governess for one of Holmes's clients, Mrs. Cecil Forrester. She doesn't warrant her own first name, you know, pre-pre-feminism, Victorian England, and all that. So, it so seems. who delivers? Pardon? I said so. It seems. So it seems. Yes. So she delivers a tale of woe concerning her father, Arthur Morstan. Only a few years ago, she, long estranged from her father, by the way, since her mother died and he went off to serve British imperialism in India, she received a telegram from him to meet her at the Langham Hotel, hey, in London. Alas, by the time she arrived at the, at the appointed time, he had completely disappeared. But that's not all. Only recently, she has been receiving the gift of a single pearl belonging to a chaplet from this, uh, that we learn is part, part of a uh, great treasure. This is from some mysterious creep benefactor. Who knows? Uh, this has been occurring for a couple of years now, but only most recently has she been given instructions to meet said secret admirer. She may bring two gentlemen to accompany her, but no police. Holmes is intrigued. Watson's already infatuated with her and agrees to go along. He's also uh, the rendezvous occurs, and we meet Thaddeus Shulton, an eccentric bald mofo who loves his hookah and dressing like a Russian furry when he goes out. He's also a hypochondriac. <laughs> anyway, he turns out that Sholto's dad, Major Sholto, and Mary's pop Arthur were buddy-buddy in the British imperialism racket, a.k.a. soldiers in India, and the Major Sholto brought back with him an immense fortune. But Sholto was haunted by his own demons and a dude with a peg leg, apparently, who has a very curious companion. That Sholto delivers the deal on Arthur's fate, that Sholto upped with their shared fortune in India and left everyone behind. During this, conf- uh, during this confrontation in London, the night Morrison disappeared... The two get into a row about the other being a complete wanker, and Morstan's weak heart gives out on him, and double down on his bad luck, he cracks his noggin open during the fall. Mm-hmm. Well, Major Sholto gets rid of the body, of course, and poor Mary has to wonder about her father's fate. But the Major wasn't allowed to enjoy his riches. No, sir. Enter Jonathan Small and his peg leg. The, 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 the trio, that is uh, Holmes, Watson, and Miss Morstan, uh, learn from Stad Sholto that their father... Fell into illness with an enlarged, with, sorry, his that their father, in referring to Thaddeus and his brother Bartholomew, learned that their uh, they learned that his father fell into illness with an enlarged spleen slash stress of guilty conscience, and on his deathbed gives the two Sholto boys the details: Arthur's fate, the wrong end of Mary Morstan, and the whereabouts of the treasure. But Sholto, seeing somebody in the window, is terrified and soon expires. Pegleg, aka or Perp Jonathan Small, who, who we learn. Um, 
who we'll learn about very, very soon, possessed by some nostalgia, and Rache, studying Scarlet reference, uh, leaves mm-hmm. a placard on the Major's corpse. Writ upon it, the number four in Indian numerals and the names of four individuals that Sholto double-crossed, including Jonathan Small. With this knowledge now given to them, Thad Sholto brings Cher, I call him Cher, that's for uh, short, uh, Watson and Miss Morstan to the Sholto estate at Pondicherry Lodge. In the top floor of the house, they find Bartholomew Sholto in his chemical lab, quite dead with a poison dart in him, of all things. All the clues lead to two accomplices, Pegleg and someone else according to Cher's deductions. But then the cavalry arrives. Athenly Jones appears and arrests Thaddeus Sholto with his evidence, uh, not believing in Holmes's alternate facts. That's okay, though, <laughs> as Sherry could carry on with his own investigation whilst Jones and the police are busily arresting the wrong people. Sherry sends Watson to pick up a mongrel with the heart of a, a bloodhound named Toby. Toby's a good doggy. We learn that Sherry traces <laughs> a human footprint, an odd one at that, that has stepped in a creosote found in the garret above the scene of the crime. Placing the creosote on a rag, Holmes gives Toby what he needs to follow the trail. Over hill and dale, slum and courtyard, lane and ditch, we follow Holmes and Watson, led by Toby on the case. But Toby being a doggy and all only takes them so far. A wharf onto the Thames. Thames. Learning from a nearby steamship operator's wife that Peglegs slash Small may have commissioned Mordecai Smith's Aurora, Holmes complies his data from the clues and Toby to commission the, the, his Dickens rejects, a.k.a. the Baker Street regulars, to track down the Aurora. Once having done so, the chase is on. Athelie Jones now seen the light of Holmes' alternative facts with some bobbies and, and Holmes and Watson pilot a, ste- a police steamer downriver to pursue the Aurora. Jonathan Small is there aboard with Smith and Son, Jack at the helm, but there's also Tonga, a racist caricature if there ever was one. Anyway, the luckless Andaman Islander moves to aim his blowgun at the police at the police boat, but Holmes and Watson fill him with lead. He disappears uh, with the key and the treasure, it seems, as the Bafasholto's treasure, we learn in a, a, a subsequent uh, scene, uh, that um, was actually empty. Sorry, i got to stop you for a second. Do they... Do they actually fill Tonga with lead? Like they only <laughs> you can make you can make it sound like a Rambo scene, man. Like <laughs> or like something from t- Robocop. Hey man, this is Victorian literature. That's like the equivalent of like <laughs> Rambo Four, where he's like killing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of of, uh, of like Indonesian junta there. I think I think the uh, <laughs> I think the detail the book gives us is we fired at the same time. Yes, back then, man. Back then, that was like. Get onto the chopper! Like that was uh, <laughs> that was the commando, you know. <laughs> right. Okay. Keep going, buddy. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Howling commandos, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Which which is my hockey pool name for the people back at home? Yeah, they're struggling bad, but that's another plot. So. After being riddled with lead, Tonga, he slips under the waves, and so Small commandeers the Aurora to run aground, and he tries to escape in the muddy banks. Nope. Not with that leg. And so using his influence, Holmes has Small brought back on to back to, brought back to 221B, and we learn his tale of woe. Soldier had to enlist because of no prospects, slash, did something wrong with some young lady and uh, <laughs> had to leave. Lost his leg to a croc in the Ganges. And, and uh, got kicked out of the army. He turned on a plantation for a nice, rich, white guy who condescended to him. And then Indian Rebellion of 1957. India rebels against the East India Company's tyranny over over, over the over, over this subcontinent. 
Fleet, so because of this uh, revolution where British citizens were being massacred and all that, flee, uh, Small flees to the fort of Agra nearby, where accosted uh, by Sikh warriors, he agrees, threatens to, threaten to kill, steal the jewels of the Raja by killing a merchant, the Raja's disguised messenger. But they were all captured soon, uh, just, uh, just before they hid the treasure, and they are, they are, and they are sent to the Adaman, Adaman Islands on, as a penal colony. We meet Arthur Morstan here, and he doesn't like how white people are being whipped, and so he befriends Small. Schultz was also there, whom Small tells of the fortune. And we all know how that turned out. In the end, Holmes realizes that he was right the whole time with some, some minor, minuscule details. Small goes off to jail. Watson is engaged. Subplot. And Holmes, you know, was not really down upon that. You know, bros before hoes. And uh, he, he, he pretty much shoots up. A.K.A. Wednesday. <laughs> and and <laughs> the story starts with cocaine and ends with cocaine. So we've got that return to the beginning, structurally. Full, full circle. 7%, yeah. 7% full circle. Full circle. Well, buddy, uh, well done. <laughs> Highly entertaining, whimsical, and detailed plot summary given by the BFG. Uh, in something that's becoming a trend now, I'm looking forward to each of your plot summaries as we move forward. Uh, we might mix it up when we get to the short stories, but uh, you've certainly got ownership over the novel summaries. You did a good job towards the end of our Bond series, too. Yeah, I, I think I think near the end I kind of found my stride with the outlines and what I wanted to, uh, to uh, do, do with them. And I kind of went back to my old ones when we did our first kind of recording trials with the study in Scarlet. And man, the first outline, that was something else... I'm glad I revised that. Yeah, that that uh, <clears throat> that's in the past, but that that's what editing's all about. Yes, it's the it's the achievement. It's it's the striving for excellence. That's that that you know that defines us. Well, look, um, so so much of our story is kind of depends on an understanding of foreign affairs um, at the time of writing. How literate and how aware of colonial uprisings do you think Victorian society were? I mean, I know we can find the actual figures of publications and whatnot, but how was in, how, how do you think news of Britain's battles and colonies abroad? How, how do you think that was publicized in London? I think I think in terms of like uh, Victorian society, uh, literacy was very important. Novels were basically like. The television, like the the television serials and and movie franchises that we had today. I mean, there was even a whole thing about how people sh didn't have to read. Um, I was reading this, um, but but bi bi biography recently, a team of rivals about uh, the political genius of Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet. And one of the members of the cabinet, um, he was. He was he was he was raised to uh, to make himself disdain the reading of novels because back then, if children um, or young girls, young men, if they read novels too much, it took away from reality and they couldn't adjust. Um, a, a lot of the kind of things said about you know t t TV and media culture today. So it just goes to show that I think people I think that goes to prove that people were addicted to reading in that sense. I think I think that the, that that the literacy and the I want to call it the middle class because I guess back then there really wasn't so much of a middle class, was there? It was more of like a lower class and then upper class. Uh huh. Yeah, the middle. But class. I think more and more yeah. the middle class is becoming more and more educated, you know, all across, you know, in in Europe and the Western world. Yeah, then it is. So I would say that 
it looked, you got to look too as the publications of where the stories were printed. The magazine, this, I believe the, what was the one in the study of Scarlet was, um, published. It's to some like Christmas edition of some magazine. Um, I want to say it was Beaton's. Be- yeah. Beaton's. Yeah. The Beaton's magazine. What was the demographic of that magazine? And remember it's a magazine. So this, that contains articles of interest and stories. And that would definitely indicate that it was for a varied audience, right? Mm-hmm. Not just like, I, th- I think the average Joe who had the basic literacy could scan the newspapers and stuff and get the information, the media, the press fills to them uh, that way. But I think when it comes to like magazines and the literature of Sherlock Holmes, these are kind of like tales for, uh, I would say middle, middle to upper class individuals. Yeah, it requires more than your working literacy to negotiate one of these stories. Yes. Anyway, um, I, I suppose also in, in asking that question, I'm, I'm quite curious <clears throat> as to how aware the British public would have been that stories like this are, um, I mean, was there a self-awareness among readers of imperial stories like this, colonial stories rather, if you will, that this stuff is overblown and that you're getting you're you're getting very stereotypical presentations of, you know, foreign lands. I mean, Britain had been colonizing for by the time this was published, still a couple hundred years, and it's not as though um the Andaman Islands or the Bay of Bengal would have been new territory for readers. So I'm I'm just wondering if if a contemporary readership would have been aware that elements of the sign of the four are hyperbolic and really quite um, offensive, or would they have just been soaking it up as, um, you know, here we are. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, this is something I came across in my research, but they, uh, one of the things that Doyle did mistakenly here is he gave the three figures of, um, <clears throat> along with Jonathan Small, who... The uh, Sikh warriors. Yeah, the Sikh warriors. He gave them all um, Muslim names. Yeah, I, I noticed that. And, so, Sikhs, I mean, aren't, and Sikhs aren't aren't Muslim. That's that's the thing no, about them. Ab- Muhammad Singh, Abdullah Khan, and Dost Akbar. Those are very those are Muslim names. And I'm I'm not suggesting that. I mean, I, I you know I wouldn't have picked that out of the air as something. But it's an example of who cares colonialism, right? And <laughs> exactly. I, and I just wonder how aware Victorian readership of this higher class may have been that they were getting a manufactured product from an entertainment point of view. Keep in mind the Victorian class produced what? The culture produced the suffragettes, right? And secondly, you had in the night in the 1800s going into the industrial revolution, you had a lot of uprisings, like a lot of popular uprisings. And this also led into the 1850s of, you know, Karl Marx, right? And then you have Darwin. So you have a lot of anti-establishment biases already in Victorian society at this point when these novels were published. So I guarantee you there were some intellectuals who were reading the the, the, the Beaton's magazine and reading Sherlock Holmes for a larf, but probably also snickering in their very quiet mm. socialism that they want to, you know, that they want to keep on the down low from the rest of society, right? So yeah. I would say, yeah, definitely. I think there was, I think there was people there who were educated enough, or knew, or were biased by another political ideology enough to see the colonial uh, markers uh, in the story and realize that definitely Arthur Conan Doyle was one hundred percent an imperialist. Uh huh. 
because they are playing with um, conventions and you know what you were saying the rise of the middle class would have certainly influenced the way a story like this is is um, absorbed or uh, interpreted because the intelligence <clears throat> required to get the story um, and all of its fine points would probably be the same intelligence that would understand that this is just uh it's just a romp you know it, it's a romp it, exactly it's it's an airport tale and of the time and if, if, if you look in comparison well okay i mean we, we've got a lot to talk about here now in our remaining time uh do you want to go into our discussion of lighting the pipes or is there something before we talk about um these components and dig into our analysis that you'd like to raise first? Well, a lot of the story revolves around, I, I think some historical context is ne here needed, is, is revolves around the Indian Rebellion. And this happened in 1857 when along the Ganges Plain, a, a, a lot of towns, a lot of, I don't know the exact term, but a lot of towns and villages uh, were being terribly mistreated by the British imperialism there, most uh, proficiently. Uh, by the East India Company, which is basically, I guess, you can look in comparison to it like Blackwater in the United States, you know, like that uh, that super security firm that did everything for Halliburton and all that, right? So, you know, you have basically pr private mercenary companies by corporate, uh, you know, paid by co corporate means doing dirty work for doing their dirty work in in India in the name of British imperialism but in fact a lot of the stuff that was done was by the east india company and the, the basically the rebellion that occurred at this time was against the east india company it, itself so this led to you know the slaughter of india company employees to british soldiers uh to the wives and children and families of the, of these people that are colonized india or they believe that colonized india and this is what our friend uh, jonathan small gets caught up in mm-hmm uh, he's not the only one. Um, this might be a good opportunity, actually, or a good moment to uh, play one of those <clears throat> tunes I was talking about earlier. And uh, what we're going to listen to here now is a well-known British march. It certainly isn't anything I think you'll find big surprising. Um, but I was doing some research into, you know, what kind of music was played in um, in these foreign fields, particularly in India during the late or mid 19th century during the time of Jonathan Small and plus and a lot of the marches that we know were actually written after this time but one I managed to find early roots in is a very popular one the British the British Grenaders which yes. you'll know you'll know because different uh, Canadian um, troops also use this I'm not exactly sure what divisions of army or air force or navy use this but um, Anyway, I'll just play it because this is the type of thing you would have heard uh, at the time, obviously not through a Bluetooth speaker, but um, <laughs> nevertheless, this is a, a march representative of the time and one I hope and I think you'll know.
talk about music and its importance, um, not just regimental music to march to, but this kind of high major key type happy adventurous circumstance or pomp and circumstance type stuff you know is so important in in morale but also important in 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 that myth that you know what you're doing in these places is not just good for britain but it's good for the people that you're 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 colonizing and that they need this type of civilization you know and the red, yeah the it's the it's the it's the romanticism of uh mm-hmm. of uh of colonialism essentially yeah well, imperialism. That's, that's exactly right and um <clears throat> i just I, you know i, I that, wanted to try to find a few made, things I wanted to yeah, find that a music. Few I was going to say that music made me think of uh, Kubrick's Barry Lyndon in that in that battle, like in, in the hundred in the uh, Seven Years' War, that uh, uh, Ryan O'Neill's character t- takes part takes part in, and the, you oh, know yeah. the troops marching in that famous kind of Napoleonic era style, right? You know, basically just marching, 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 and then you know, and and someone's always playing the pipes and playing the drums next to him. People are getting shot down, but if he keeps playing those pipes, keeps playing those drums. I mean, that's what they did, right? That's how they did their battles, you know, just sending people in swarms to get shot. And mo- and if you're lucky, you don't get hit by one of the, the terribly aimed ball bearings, you know, and then you make it through the line. That's basically what that music signifies to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it signifies all kinds of things. It, it may, or, I mean, on a personal level, it reminds me of uh, playing marches in the high school band and you oh know, yes, the, of course. The community band I used to play with my dad, and I mean, just being a percussionist. I mean, all I, I love marches. I remember the radio show I did at uh, university with Matt Tooley, a uh, buddy of mine who uh, was a saxophone player. Anyway, he hated marches, and part of the reason he hated marches was because there was no good sax parts for the march, right? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, saxophones don't really work with a, uh, with with, uh, with with with, an, with like a militaristic march, I suppose. Anyway, yeah, so. Okay, sorry. I mean, I, I don't know if that interrupted or if that just uh, can can act as a segue into um, into a discussion of of our light in the pipes. I mean, anything Perhaps else both. to add? Perhaps both. Did, do you want to say anything about? Um, I think you mentioned uh, you had some notes about the use of cocaine at the time as well. I mean, this plays a big part in in in, in, in the novel as well. But and a lot of a lot of these stories, uh, or should we kind of include that perhaps maybe in the discussion of the narrative? Yeah, I'm happy either way. I don't have a whole heck of a lot to say, but I, I was struck um, by Holmes's recreational use of cocaine, and I just wanted to look into it a little bit more. Um, you know, how readily available was it? What kind of people, what kind of people used it, um, and how was it used? That type of stuff. But yeah, I mean, if if you want to start there, um, I, I can certainly do that. Add the context for you. I just kind of have a bit of a question in the sense of like, so it seems like that, like back then, I mean, if you think of like cocaine use nowadays, you think of like people, you know, in row houses, you know, or, or in yeah. shooting galleries and having the state have to fund like these places, you know, for people to do these things. But now, like when you have someone like Sherlock Holmes, you know, at 221 B Baker Street, wearing his bathrobe and like his, uh, call his, you know, his scarf or whatever, like sitting down there, you know, in his chair, surrounded by all these, you know, uh, amenities, you know, just basically... Yes, by Jove, I'm just going to put this needle into my arm and, you know, uh-huh. uh, inject the cocaine into my body and let myself fly. Like, it's just kind of it's, it's interesting to see an upper class uh, perspective of it, I suppose. Yes, and <clears throat> I think Doyle, even though it is a little bit more culturally appropriate, I still think Doyle used it as uh, a feature of his highly functionally 
uh, autistic character because the, the I mean it isn't just a, a common wreck. It's not like he he has a snuff box, you know. He's 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 injecting himself with a toxic substance, um, and it it is not the type of drug use that you would expect to see of the time of an upper class gentleman. I don't think, but. As part of Holmes's restlessness and as part of his need to constantly occupy his brain, in these dull moments when there's nobody knocking at the door, he needs a rush so that he can find, you know, uh, um, uh, he can find a, a sense or an impulse or a stimulus for his mind. And I guess that's, that's kind of part of it. It's, it. To me, his cocaine use isn't so much representative of others like him and more representative of his mental faculties and his mm-hmm. need uh, his need and um, avoidance of um, the mundane, you know, but it's true. And if you think about it, like Watson is even saying, like, is it cocaine or is it morphine today? I mean, it's basically like you can tell Watson is critical of it. And Doyle is writing Watson in that respect. So you he can is, tell yeah. that yeah. What, what Holmes is doing is not of the norm. I mean, gentlemen yeah. back then had their snuff boxes and their chewing tobacco and whatnot. Yeah, but right. those were just kind of considered almost like just having a cigarette. Whereas this is something else entirely, right? It is, yeah. And yeah. you're right. You're right to point out that this is um, that Doyle gives Watson all the criticism because uh, Watson, of course, is us, right? We're we are Watson as we are led through the adventure of Holmes, and uh, our surprise is also Watson's surprise. And so I think if you want the average Victorian man or reader's opinion of what Holmes is doing, it is exactly there in the words of Watson. Yeah, I, I yeah I agree with that. I also think Watson is a little bit of a surrogate for Conan Doyle in many ways too. Well, um, not as he, not as much, not as much as Sherlock is, I'll, I don't think. But I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll get into my theory about that okay. uh, when we when we discuss Mary Morstan. All right. Well, basically, I'll just finish off this cocaine stuff. At the time, cocaine, and I guess still today, largely imported from South America, uh, but it was used quite differently then. Um, in uh, in Victorian times and into the early 20th century too, cocaine was used as an anesthetic and a nerve tonic, uh, widely and legally obtainable. So you were breaking no laws by doing what Holmes was doing, at least not in 1889. However, its dangerously addictive qualities were starting, just starting to become better known and better understood. So much so that Conan Doyle eventually has Holmes change or kind of go cold turkey from or is it weaning? I can't remember. Uh, I read it, but I haven't read the story yet, so I can't confirm. But I believe he he weans himself off of cocaine um, to match what would be more tasteful for readers and culture at the time. But certainly, uh, yeah, these these first two or this story here and its uh, prolific showcasing of cocaine use is um, one of the last times we'll see it in this way. I see. Well, that's interesting, and I think in many ways, uh, and Cher's character there, it seems that he would probably, you know how we mentioned in Study in Scarlet how he says that he has no need to know about Copernican theory, you know? like Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's almost like it goes, oh, so scientifically it's been proven that it's not healthy for you. Well, logically then I should stop. And I guess you can kind of see that as the argument that Holmes would take up to stop it. You know, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be an, uh, I, I guess a plot hole, as some people would call it, in terms of him giving it up. You know, like you could, you could, you could theorize for yourself why he would do so. Yeah. No, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, uh, you got anything else to say, or shall we just uh, start this light in the pipe? No. Up? I think. Uh, well, yeah. Let's uh, take away the needle and light the pipes.
Old Toby. Okay, time to light the pipes. P-I-P-E-S. We got our principals, our investigation, our perpetrator, our environs, and our supporting players. All right, well... Uh, we got some old Toby in the in there. Uh, that's a Lord of the Rings re- reference. That's the weed that uh, the hobbits smoke and Gandalf partakes in as well. Uh, but it's kind of funny. Old Toby kind of fits in with the story, actually. Sure does. Old Toby is our uh, bloodhound. Well, not he's not a bloodhound. He's a mongrel. But like, like you said, like the heart, spaniel, heart of the bloodhound. Like, he's like a spaniel sheepdog kind of mongrel, right? Or... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. Okay, cool. Well, let's, um, let's do it. Let's talk... Uh, Lighten the pipes. All right, so. Principles. All right, so our principles are, which is, of course, our uh, dynamic duo, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. James Watson. I thought, you John said Jane. Watson. I thought you said Jane Watson for a minute. And I'm like, yeah. That's Jane Watson. John Watson, I meant to say. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess I guess I got still got James Bond on the mind, I suppose. Maybe I got I got the, those two conflated somehow, Dr. Watson and James Bond. Well, they both like the women, I suppose. So I guess that's uh, a, a, a connection. Do you want to start? Yeah, so I'll do, we'll, we'll begin with the first part of the pipes, uh, the principles. So I, I felt that compared to a study in Scarlet, we got a better picture of the characters of, of uh, Watson and Holmes in, in this one. There is established, there's a strong establishment already now, I think, uh, based on a couple of clues about kind of his attitude in the study in Scarlet, him being a bit sarcastic and maybe a little bit arrogant. And you really see kind of that in in, in, in colors, many colors in the in, in the sign of four that Sherlock Holmes is, as you were saying. And I think there's a development in his character in this way that a lot of actors have portrayed down the road is that he is a high functioning autistic, and the cocaine use, for example, uh, his ability to, to kind of like only deal with focus on certain things and aspects and not being totally social, but having I guess the social graces to mask that. In sociability in the best way he possibly can hmm. um but again your single focus is is key here um i also found him a little more of a melancholic individual um he was saddened you know at the news that watson is going to be married at the end you could you know it was him just saying you know, all the stuff about you know like i prefer cold facts and cold data and and you know like reason it, it, it shouldn't be emotional you know and, and that's how he loves to live his life but at the same time you know, at the end, he goes right back to his cocaine. So his cocaine after that. So I think it definitely there was more faucets of his character shown in this story. Um, also, too, like I can tell other things too is that um, the way that he deals with Ethelney Jones and he kind of humors them and condescends to them, and but he's not rude or about it, you know. But also, he, he loves animals. I really liked how he treated Toby. You know, like kind of calling. You know, good doggy. You know, and uh, it was just there, you saw different facets of his character than you did in this in this in a study in Scarlet. So he seems that Conan Doyle is kind of making him a more three dimensional <clears throat> character than just as you know Watson says to his response to you know Miss Morstan was quite 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 pretty. You know, and Watson was and, and Holmes is like, was she? I hadn't noticed. You know, like 
you were some calculating machine, Holmes, and you know, and that's not the case at all. I think I think there's a lot of subtlety to his character that Conan Doyle is beginning to explore. Well, um, you're not going to hear a whole heck of a lot. What's your counterpoint to that? Well, it, it's it's very similar, actually. So my counterpoint musically would uh, sound a lot like your own melody. Holmes is, I felt, a little bit better developed in this story. We learn of his cocaine use, as you said, and we talked about. And I also like the fact that we learn of his several monographs. Now, in Studying Scarlet, he talks about being able to identify and working on something that will help him to um, uh, promote his tobacco ash detection system, right? That's and... right. Anyway, so we get more of that here. Uh, did you have something to say there? It sounded like you cut off. No, I said that's right. Oh, okay, yeah. So <laughs> that's one of the monographs that he's written and published. And I, I, I kind of find it interesting that he doesn't, like so many other things about his work and his personality, he doesn't brandish or kind of promote himself through those things. He, he, he no. when, when, when Watson kind of shows some surprise, he says, oh, yes, I've written a few things and blah, blah, blah. And then he goes into it. But you think he would have, by now, celebrated it a bit more. So there was an inconsistency there, but it wasn't a serious one. I just thought it was no. more more curiosity maybe than an inconsistency that he hadn't self promoted. But um, I, I think there was. I think you could always look at kind of like uh, studying Scarlet is kind of like you know like if you look at television, it's the pilot episode, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the pilot episode is what they always show to networks, uh, you know, for them to buy, you know, to, to take on their their show to 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 have a greenlit as a series. And it basically gives you all the thematics of what the show is going to be about and everything. And I think Studying Scarlet established that. But now, you know, with the sign of four, we can kind of get into the characters. You, you, and you can – some things are going to be slightly different or tweaked. And I think that's one of those things is, is mm -hmm. that um, there's there's going to be some one or two inconsistencies, like you mentioned, uh, yeah. that, are, that are going to be different from the, the originals from, from the first story. Yes. And, yeah, that's one of them, I guess. We also get, um, and you just kind of highlighted on this, uh, a bit of early banter, I guess, between him and uh, Watson. A greater sense of Holmes' feelings about romantic love. Anything that distracts his brain from its chief focus is a waste of time. We did get that in the previous story, too. But Watson calls him an automaton, and Holmes reminds <laughs> him that, quote, emotional qualities are antagonistic to clear reasoning. And I think those lines have been said over and over again in literature and in life by a great number of different people, the variations yes. on the theme. But I thought it was interesting tying into what you just said a minute ago. I found, though, that Conan Doyle is a bit more playful and showy with Holmes this time around. Maybe he's more confident, and maybe he was really inspired by uh, Stoddart's offer of 100 pounds for 40,000 words that he really wanted to give this guy uh, who helped make such a golden evening for him at the Langham Hotel in August of that year. Maybe he wanted to give him something really special. And I think he's more playful with Holmes here. We've got, yes. we've got an indulgent scene towards the end with Watson's watch and how he's able to tell a lot about, you know, his, uh, his brother from it and all that stuff. Um, yeah. it's, he's boastful, he's entertaining, but, um, in, in that scene, I guess it's also Conan Doyle setting up as he did in study of Scarlet this deductive reasoning that Holmes shows so that we know later he's going to solve this ma this case, right? Um, we also learn other stuff about him, that he spars and practices boxing. McMurdo, one of, uh, McMurdo. Sholto's, one of Sholto's heavies, is led to recognize him. That's, that's quite an interesting scene. Uh, actually, I'd like to read a bit from that, if, if you'll indulge me for a moment. Yes, please. Uh, this is when 
um, they're approaching Pondicherry Lodge and Holmes is um, stopped by McMurdo, who's uh, Sholto's, one, one of Sholto's heavies, is just kind of trying to keep him from interrupting. Uh, da, 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 da. This was an unexpected obstacle. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Thaddeus Sholto looked about perplexed. and yeah, cause, Oh, that's right. They're going to see Bartholomew, aren't they? That's what they're doing. Um, this is too bad of you, McMurdo, he said. If I guarantee them, that's enough for you. There's the young lady, too. She cannot wait on the public road at this hour. Very sorry, Mr. Thaddeus, said the porter inexorably. Folk may be friends of yours, and yet no friend of the master's. He pays me well to do my duty, and my duty I'll do. I don't know none of your friends. Oh, yes, you do, McMurdo, cried Sherlock Holmes genially. I don't think you can have forgotten me. Don't you remember that amateur who fought three rounds with you at Allison's rooms on the night of your benefit four years back? Not Mr. Sherlock Holmes, roared the prize fighter. God's truth, how could I have mistook you? If instead of standing there so quiet, you just stepped up and give me that cross hit of yours under the jaw, I'd have known you without a question. Ah, uh, you're the one that wasted your gifts you have. You might have aimed high had you joined the fancy. I, I like that, not just kind of the rapport between the two characters, but in a roundabout way, while it deepens Holmes as a character, it also kind of gives us a believability factor for how he can climb roofs and do stuff like he does. The fact that he's a fit man, you know? Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. Conan Doyle is filling in the blank that he needs to flesh out his character. I think so. And it really, it really goes to show, I think, again, I mentioned about the pilotitis of studying Scarlet, is is that it was just, the, I think he, I think when I, Conan Doyle, I think he was really kind of into that Mormon storyline. He wanted to write, because if you read some of his other books and whatnot, he's really into high adventure and to mm-hmm. vis, and faraway vistas. Yep. And I think that was the key to, that was the heart of his tale. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote this detective story around it. Yeah. And so the, yeah. the characters of Holmes and Watson were just kind of like, uh, peripheral, I suppose, to, to what he, the story that he wanted to tell about Jonathan Hope, right? I've, I don't just agree with you a bit. I'm I'm a hundred percent with you. I've made a note similar to that. Like the Mormon story, it's this story of of you know the Indian uprising and and the treasure and all that. I think this is a story he really wanted to tell. And I'm telling you what, there's a lot of features, and we'll get to this. But there's a lot of features of uh, Stevenson's Treasure Island in this story that are just screaming out, which was only seven years old at the time of this book being written. So I think that Scott influenced this Scott. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, um, if you look at Jonathan Small, I mean, come on, right? Yeah, so. we'll talk about him. But um, anyway, I just want to finish my bet on Holmes. Um, I like how Holmes' name can be used as currency in some sketchy parts of London, like exactly how he forges relationships with these people is unknown. But in Pynchon Lane in Lambeth, where he goes to collect Toby from Mr. Sherman, all, yeah. all Watson has to do is say, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And then, you know, it's kind of like the abracadabra card that you need to get places and yeah that that adds a lot of interesting dimension to Holmes too because there's a backstory to all these relationships I I agree it's great world building if you think about it it is yeah very Dickensian very Dickensian at the same time there's almost like a a comic book mythos kind of being established here if you think about it you know akin to like Superman or Batman you know Hmm. in, in that kind of way yeah I hadn't thought about that but that's not a bad analogy um Right, what else can I say about Holmes? He doesn't, yeah, and I, I don't really, I, I don't at first get it, but I, I think I kind of do. Why Holmes doesn't reveal to Watson who Small's associate is. It's in chapter 7, I've made the note here. He doesn't talk about the Islander. He doesn't talk about Tonga. Is exactly, yeah, 
Good point. But the, I figured that the reason he doesn't do it is a narrative function on the part of Conan Doyle. He he mm. wants, and he has, really, to hold some secrets back so that the elements of surprise can still arrive later on when we hear about the angry native face and, and the, the sharp teeth and stuff like that. Like I find that it plays a little immaturely here, out of place with Holmes's character, for not sharing with his partner what's going on. But I, I guess from a liter- uh, narrative point of view... Conan Doyle is firmly trapped into Holmes and he can't really give away his plot too much. So he's got a, Mm. so we've got this wait for it, ta-da kind of structure going on. Well, you could, and I use word, I word this, I use this word underline. You could fan wank, (laughs) mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, as I've been known to say uh, several times or do several times that perhaps because of the high functioning qualities of Holmes, you know, possibly being on the spectrum and all that, he's so focused in what he's doing and he doesn't want any any distractions or ideas to counteract it, right? So yeah. I, it's possible that it could have just been a single focus on his part, but there's definitely a lot of moments where he kind of it's it's yeah it's where a character, as you say, and the author are kind of working at the same purposes mm-hmm. and it, for funks for the functionality of the narrative itself to pull off these twists. Yeah, and so you get to see sort of the the gears behind the the the, the face of the, of the watch, you know, in this respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My last note on Holmes, his character here, is that he's shown to be a little more trusting of Watson here in the story with case elements. When he leaves in disguise as that uh, naval officer to go find out more from Smith down at the wharf, he tells Watson to, quote, open all notes and telegrams to act on your own judgment if any news should come. So yes. there's, there's a sense that he's growing more confident in his roomie here. Um, is, is, is it a partnership? I don't think it's anywhere near a partnership, but it feels a little more gesturing towards a partnership than it did in Study of Scarlet, where it was magician on stage and Watson is just kind of like, what the hell's going on? You know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, exactly. What's up? Because now he's just he's just he's just used to Holmes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The whole the whole thing. Um, I don't know if you got a chance. I mentioned to you is watching the uh, the masterpiece theater one in the 80s with of sign of four with uh, jeremy brett as holmes and edward hardwick as watson but the in the scene in the book where they where he sends watson to go pick up toby um in the book it's explicitly said that toby is a dog but in the but in the adaptation they tell him uh he, he says i need you to go get toby and you're going to go to this address and get toby and watson has no idea that it's a dog so again that's like the idea of playing the, the narrative and uh-huh. holding back information for the surprise right yeah, that's a good example as well. I've got yeah. nothing else to say about Holmes. I've got just a couple of things on Watson. Why don't I finish off my, my principles and then I'll let you talk about Watson and that will be a nice bookend to it. Yeah, um, I, I was going to mention too about okay. Sherlock before we conclude there. I also liked how it showed that he puts how he puts up kind of dryly and with a kind of fun sarcasm with like, but not insulting to people like Athelie Jones because I think he just realizes there's just, there's just people that are, I liked how he was surprised that Anthony Jones's theory was somewhat kind of sound. I kind of yeah. found that funny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he does end up arresting one of the guys that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. He does. He does. And he does in that respect, the, uh, the Indian guy who was like the insider for uh, small inside the uh, Sholto estate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he also mentions too, that I should mention, I should say not. He mentions that he does allow like guys like Lestrade and and uh, Gregson, and in this case, Alvin Lee Jones, 
take full to take the collar to take the full to pay, take the full credit. He has no problem doing that as long as his mind is stimulated by these challenges, these right. investigations. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he he. It's yeah. almost like a fix for him. Well, it is a fix for him, isn't it? He it is. He, it, he it's exactly what it is. Yeah, he doesn't care about who else is involved or who takes the credit. But um, Watson is really, and this <clears throat> is my opinion anyway. He's only moderately further developed. His love affair with Mary is. It's a little silly. It's a little juvenile in its first sight characteristics, but it's believable enough um, because he's For still the time only. Period, yeah. Well, uh, he he's just a passenger in these stories so far. He's still just the reader's eyes. That his involvement with Mary is not really a detraction for me. It it doesn't take away from anything. Um, I just, mm-hmm. I just you know whatever. It doesn't do much for me, but I guess it's an element that we haven't seen yet in Conan Doyle's earlier story so why not bring some love into it um it certainly couldn't be holmes because watson's love it gives holmes the antagonist role against love and that helps define his character more so there are glancing moments i found of his and mary's attraction they work well there's enough consistent referral to it um i don't know if i would use the word you did subplot i don't think that there's enough there to warrant a subplot he stands by her holds his holds, holds her hand at Pondicherry Lodge. He's very chivalrous and keen, but he comes across a little too sappy for me. Like, this is a guy yes. who, you know, this he's a little too um, earnest, I think. But, like I said, it doesn't really take too Maybe. much away from uh, my well, enjoyment. Um, yeah, he is, he I, is I though, the function of the reader. He's uh, the reader's yeah, eyes. Yeah, he's 100%. He, he is 100% the function of the reader in this mm-hmm. novel. He's a little more fleshed out. I like his concern for Holmes, you know, regarding, you know, and, but again, he's reacting to what Holmes does, uh, you know, and he's kind of like a, you know, like, he's, a, he's kind of a character that, uh, one of the novels that I have read in the past of, of, of uh, Conan Doyle is The Hound of the Baskervilles, and we'll get into that at some point, uh, very, I guess after the next couple of ventures that we deal with. But um, what, I think that to me is Watson's best presentation in, as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also one of, one of the short stories that I did read that, that I read also is, has a strong Watson point of view, and you see him more as a character than it's just as like a audience surrogate. And he's still that here, and it's even even more funny because just to, just as a reference here, you never ever hear any mention of Mary Morstan after this novel. I've read, I uh, did read that. Yeah, I heard that. He does mention his wife, or at a couple of intervals that I've been told, anyway. Um, yeah, just I've heard as much that we don't actually get Mary Morstan come back into it. This is really the beginning and the end of her. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that, really. I don't mind yeah. that. I don't mind that Doyle has come to write these two characters and these two characters only, and not really their, you know, the, the people the women maybe behind him. I mean, it is a very masculine type idea and certainly approach, but yeah, I don't know. Um, th- my, my last point about Watson is really a point about Holmes too, that, um, cause you know, one feeds into the other in terms of character definition. Watson's the character who needs more sleep. He's the one who needs the food. He's the one who, you know, he's the non superhero, uh, of the two of them. And the fact yes. that he gets a nap and, I did like, though, at the end of Chapter 8, I just want to read this little bit. Um, I'm sure you remember it when Holmes and Watson are back kind of waiting, having a rest and waiting. Holmes is still too agitated to properly sleep, so he plays Watson to sleep with his violin. 
Yeah, that was, yeah, that that was kind of a nice moment, you know. Like you can, uh, I'll just play my violin, you and you can go to sleep to it. So, right, that's a nice you know, description, though. That's quite a nice description. If you'll indulge me. Yeah, of course, indulge. He took up his violin from the corner, and as I stretched myself out, he began to play some low, dreamy, melodious air, his own, no doubt, for he had a remarkable gift for improvisation. I have a vague remembrance of his gaunt limbs, his earnest face, and the rise and fall of his bow. Then I seemed to be floated peacefully away upon a soft sea of sound until I found myself in dreamland with the sweet face of Mary Morstan looking down upon me. It's kind of like Holmes is doing his buddy a favor here, helping him get <laughs> to sleep. Like it, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of a parental uh, or a paternal uh, thing going on here, you know? Yeah, no, I can kind of see that. Yeah, in, in, in that in that way, there are people who would who would uh, read a lot more yeah, <laughs> ambiguous oh, yes. homosexual yeah. things into that part, but uh-huh. uh, then they have their crazy like fan fiction about that, anyways. But uh, well, I can't in... t- I can't tell you how many like much fan fiction supposedly exists about like uh, or people bl- wanting like Watson and Sherlock in the modern TV series to be a couple. So exactly. I've heard as much as well. And there are actually, uh, schools of, uh, fan analysis, I guess what we're doing kind of that, um, <clears throat> are also quite keen to see the two of these as homosexual figures, but I'm not paying anything into that, uh, particularly with this story, but yeah, so when we looked at studying Scarlet, I gave the principles a 3.5. Um, they didn't feel as flushed out for me. They, you know, there was some work to do, but still a very good mark. Here, um, I feel like there's a little bit more to enjoy, a little bit more depth and dimension to explore. And for that reason, I went uh, 4.5 out of 5. I can't give it top marks because I don't know yet. Um, I, I, I didn't like some of the sappiness of Watson, and I did feel like he was still playing second fiddle, pardon the pun, too much. I would like to see him have a little bit more agency. We haven't got that just yet. This is still very much Holmes' show. So i got to save that extra point five for when I see a partnership that really comes to life. I don't have it yes. yet. That, 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 that's my point of view. But um, I was really <laughs> even thinking maybe 4.5 is a little bit too generous. But the bottom line is I enjoyed them both here. Particularly Holmes, I think, is good in this one. He has a sense of humor in this book too, like when Toby takes him down the wrong barrel line. And I, I think that <laughs> I think there's a there's a humanity here that we didn't see from Holmes yes. in the first one, and I enjoy that. And I like the cocaine thing that adds a bit of dimension. And but, well, I'm, I'm not going to repeat myself. I went four point five. I thought it was good, yes. and uh, that that's me done with with my principles. How about you? My principles, I I rated the exact same thing. I was going to get. I wanted to give five because. I just found Holmes fantastic in this story. I was just compared to studying Scarlet, you know, where I was, I thought he was kind of intriguing, and I guess you could use in the vernacular cool. Uh, I found in this particular story he was just an engaging character, and everything that he was doing, unlike uh, studying Scarlet, where the Mormon narrative takes over it completely. And it's in this story the aggress is this tale told by Small is diminutive compared to the the investigation and the work that Holmes does in, in the narrative. And I think Holmes came out – I think Watson kind of paid the price for that because his characterization offered counterpoint that Holmes required to flesh out his character. And yes, yes. I think Holmes ended up the hero of this tale. And uh, I, I, I give as a whole you know, the improvement. I went from a 4. I go to a 4.5 in this one. Great. Okay. Well, uh, we've both seen then an improvement. Yes, we've both seen an improvement. So I say uh, now we get on, as I mentioned, you know, how the 
agra narrative comparison to the um, Mormon narrative in studying Scarlet, the investigation, I think, is what we'll go into next. All right, there we go. Investigation. Right. Um, I, I think in terms of how the case was laid out in this one, uh, the clues were there, but and they were subtle. At the same time, it wasn't like you could kind of figure out something was going on in this one compared to study in Scarlet. It wasn't just like, because Holmes says it's so, or because Arthur Conan Doyle says it's so there. I think there was a lot of subtlety in terms of how the clues were laid out. Don't, don't you think? Well, okay. Let me understand what you're saying. Are, are you yeah, saying? Sorry, not subtlety, not subtlety. I meant to say more about, I think that if you, if you go back and read it, you could easily see how you could miss something and then, and but but you could see how as well how you in another point of view or another mindset when you read it you would have you would have been able to pick up on some of these things. That's okay, what I'm trying to say. Right. So you're saying that in comparison to studying Scarlet, the clues that Holmes picks up on and the clues which are left by the writer for us to follow are maybe a little bit more puzzle piece comfortable. And what and also in 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 light of that, they are also. Um, they propel the narrative together as well. The narrative isn't the, the clues and the narrative. They work seamlessly together with the character interactions, with uh, the development of certain plot of plot details, conflicts that occur. Everything seems to flow in this storyline, and you're not just being led around uh, around, you know, by the author in in this story like you were in the first story. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I don't disagree with the first part of what you said, but I do disagree with the uh, the second part of um being not being led around this quite the same way um i i feel as though the way that <clears throat> the perpetrator's story is revealed in this in this tale uh in the third person when jonathan smalls arrested and just tells it to us in that chapter uh, oh yes real time if you will i found that to be far less gripping than jefferson hope story revealed to us sorry the first person story in this episode i felt less gripping than the third person in the study in scarlet where we we have that great jarring um detachment from london and we're 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 sent over to the utah desert and i found that was almost like a brand new novel um it yes. may structure it may structurally have been weaker because of that but i found it far more engaging because i felt as though i was getting more Conan Doyle, the versatile writer in new lands with new perspectives, mm-hmm. instead of just sitting down listening to a convict convict rattle on. I felt I found it more interesting the way that the investigation was or sorry, the way that the perpetrator story was revealed in the investigation in the first one compared to this. So I agreed with the first part of what you said, but I do think that here we are led far more ploddingly through the perpetrator's um, you know, modus operandi and everything, the story of the uprising and the treasure and whatnot, I found it boring in comparison to uh, the study in Scarlet. But that's just me. You know, I, <laughs> I appreciate that there's benefit to the first-person, real-time um, approach. But from a storytelling point of view, I thought we saw Conan Doyle do a better job of the foreign land in the other one. Okay, that's that. I, I agree with that for sure. I think even if you think about it, the if you had that jarring kind of uh, move to India, seems through like Jonathan Small's per, uh, perspective, 
not him telling the story, but just him, him as a character experiencing it. I think that would have been a, uh, that could have been probably pretty awesome as well. Yeah, it would have, it would have been a much bigger book though, because well, maybe not, maybe not. But at the same time, though, it would also kind of I would be a bigger book, and I think it would probably drag down the narrative, because I think in this, as as I mentioned in studying the Scarlet, he wanted to tell the story of, of Jefferson Hope and and that Mormon back you know that whole Mormon backdrop. That was a story that he wanted to tell, and how and the investigation around it was just peripheral. And in this story here, this book was about the investigation. It was about Sherlock Holmes trying to capture the perp, and that perp was Jonathan Small, and he has the story. And there are so many details layered of the Agra storyline throughout the book that we can kind of put together by the end of it that really didn't have to be like a, a bunch of like third person perspective of him telling the story t- to uh, everyone for about 10 pages or so. Right. Yeah. And that I, I think that, that it, it took a lot of punch out of that particular tale. It kind of drove Drake down a little bit. So in that respect, I think the narrative does kind of weaken in comparison to the Jefferson Hope uh, episode in uh, studying scarlet but you make an important point and um yeah i'm not going to change the way i feel about you know reading the pages i like the way studying scarlet yes. revealed it more but what you're saying about this being more of a more of a uh, holmes on the hunt for a guy instead of jefferson hope's going to show up and do his thing regardless like I, the fact that holmes finds him chases captures him probably lends itself more to a first person Okay, now sit down and tell me what's going on. Reveal and and, and we also get that whole, um, yeah. And and you know I got to give Conan Doyle credit because he does lay the foundations for that first person uh, interview when Holmes uh, requests it and says, "Look, the only thing I want from you, Jones, is the promise that when we apprehend him, you'll give me my interview." And so he's he's already created the interview scenario and planted it in the reader's mind that we're going to get it. So I. It's just an aesthetic thing, and it, I haven't yes. detracted the score much from it. But yeah, I guess structurally the stories are are a little different, and this one more about Holmes getting the guy. So let's have that first person thing. I mean, I, I can see that. It'll be interesting though and, and, to see how this you know evolves or transforms as if it's just going the to formula. Be yeah, because basically, yeah, because we have the formula here for the standard mystery novel happening, right? Yes. I mean, out of Colin Doyle, you get Agatha Christie. And you get other writers similar to that. So, and how the narrative is is, is espoused to the reader. Um, I was just exposed, sorry, not espoused. That doesn't make any sense. Um, just to continue, um, as a whole, I think, the, and this the clues, I think, were done really, were, were done really well. Like the, the 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 blood on the blood stain on the rope, you know. Um, that was later found on the wall outside of the of the grounds of Pondicherry Lodge, uh, and then you also have like the 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 uh, the, 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 the um, Tonga stepping in the creosote, and and that led to the trail and everything like that. And then you have the pearls coming in, and uh, just the whole idea of the mystery and all the different characters that took part in the mystery, like and this really brought the characters in, and not just as the side characters in, not just as witnesses. But it's also characters in the narrative that had their own functioning. McMurdo was in the narrative, and he had his and he had his function. But he also helped define Holmes's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had, for example, uh, Mordecai Smith's uh, wife, and then their kid Jack. You had Holmes like saying, "Jack, there's a good boy. Do you want a shilling?" Like he likes kids too, right? So I mean, he, well, he does like kids because he puts up with the Baker Street Irregulars, right? The street Arabs. Yeah. So. 
so in, 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 in many ways, you know, I, I think just the, I just think the narrative was just stronger than a study in Scarlet in terms of the standard formula Sherlock Holmes story that I was expecting to read when I read a study in Scarlet. And you get like this giant but epic, you know, side story in the first book. And this to me, this felt more like a Sherlock Holmes novel as I have considered what it would what would be in my mind compared to like a study in Scarlet was. Okay, fair fair dues. Um... So my full my full marks for the the narrative, um, the story, everything. I'm going with a solid. Uh, I'm also going to go on four point five on this one. A little short in comparison because you, you know the expectations at the Mormon storyline. I kind of wanted Agra to be pretty awesome too, and I didn't quite get that. All right. Well, um, I'm going to I'm going to give you my score now. I just scribbled yours down. Uh, but before I do that. I would like to pick up on something you said a few moments ago, uh, which I agree with 100%, that this, as with in Study in Scarlet and the Utah scenes, I feel like the foreign land is the one that Doyle most wants and is most interested in, in showcasing. Like the slave revolts, mystic religions, uh, you know, all this stuff that happens, the treasure and the murder and the betrayal, like it's all very attractive. And I think it would have been especially attractive to colonial appetites and readership, like these imperial values of valor and, and courage and, and, and also, also self-serving greed, you know? I mean, that's part of it too. Like his perpetrators are designing for him a niche feature for his own narrative desire and i don't know if you see it quite the way i do in that respect but they, they go places and they have the adventures that neither he holmes or watson have or perhaps have the ability to do like structurally the story like studying scarlet it kind of tiptoes a bit through the mystery carefully a bit more action with the boat chase and everything but yeah th then there's this exaggerated release of pressure with the info dump and, and 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 it is a release of pressure because the story is slowly building up suspense and tension through the tiptoeing mystery and then when we get the culprit the perpetrator apprehended there's this like release as there was with jefferson hope here it's with jonathan small you get this release of like foreign plot and info dump and backstory that he revels in and that to me is really what conan doyle wants to be writing and i think going back to what you said last episode about his um his character he wrote in the, what was the name of the character charger is that right Furrier? no no the in the the lost world Oh, P P Professor Challenger. Professor Challenger, yeah. Like, he, Doyle has said that those are the stories he enjoyed writing the most, right? And I, and I think that's because you've got this, <clears throat> yeah, Sherlock Holmes is paying the money, he's paying the bills, but Challenger is the guy who he's following and enjoying more in these exciting, kind of almost H.G. Wellsian worlds, you know? Yes, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I actually, I'm going to definitely read. I think the uh, the uh, Lost World. I saw a really nice edition at Chapters the other day. So cool. I think after Holmes is all done, I'm going to, I'm going to check that book out. Ah, oh, that's a good shout. Uh, yeah. I've got a note here of something I want to to share from page well later in the book. The strange uh, the, the, the the chapter where Small is uh, basically telling all uh, a clever device on Doyle's part to bribe Sholto with the treasure, and I thought this was cool. Because if you think about how effective it is that when he reaches the Andaman Islands and um, he meets Sholto, he is still a prisoner. And one of the ways that he buys, or the way that he buys his freedom, is by offering Sholto this 
opportunity to clear his own gambling debts through yes. another gamble, if you think about it. It's quite clever. I, li- I like the way that that kind of came together. It's like his trump card, and ironically, <laughs> it puts Sholto into further debt. So there's something symbolic going on there, too. Oh, absolutely. Small is definitely a bright character, and um, in a way, like, I guess you could say he uh, he knew exactly what what who Sholto was and how he could manipulate him. All right. Well, you went four point five, right, for the investigation. I I enjoyed the way it it came together. I didn't quite enjoy it as much as you though, and so from my investigation mark, I went uh, four out of five. Fair enough. And when I say investigation too, I'm also thinking about the narrative how it flowed. There's just some great scenes and there's just some great scenes in the story, like the Toby sequence, um, the the first the, the the meeting, like the the the, uh, the uh, meeting to go to the theater to to the Lyceum Theater, and then to the Schulte and to Pondicherry Large Lodge. That whole sequence, um, the whole sequence with uh, the, the, the the riverboat chase, uh, all of those I think were great, just great moments that really made this book stand out to me. Uh, outside of, you know, a great Mormon narrative, I guess you could say. <laughs> okay, well, that's us then done investigation. All right. So let's move on to the perpetrator then, our Jonathan Small and Tonga. Hmm. Tonga. What to say about Tonga? Hmm. Well, would you say that was a racist betrayal? Uh, would I say? Um, yes. <laughs> yes, I would say. More than, but it's more not than possible, than given the fact of anthropolo- anthropologically speaking, not racially speaking, but anthropologically speaking. And please refute me if, if you know, if you wish to. Um, do you not think that someone in Tonga's position um, would act the way that he does, based on the fact that he's not civilized as much as those other people? I, yes, um, of course. There's an argument for that. Of course, there is, but, and I, I don't think we need to to shy away from stating the obvious. He's out of his comfort zone. He's out of the Andaman Islands. He's basically been a few. He's basically been like a hired animal slave, and he, you know, human beings will be as feral as they are trained or raised to be. So, yeah, I'm. I, I don't doubt that the savagery of this character, it, and I use that as. Um, as an adjective describing his behavior, not his person, as is done in the book. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't doubt that the savagery of his character is learned from being a fish out of water and running around with this one-legged um, Long John Silver character. Now, didn't you find, though, in the description of Tonga when he slips beneath the waves and the Thames and stuff and him lying in the river and Smalls being upset about him for that one moment... There's a bit of a sadness to to, to Tonga's story in, in a way that I think Conan Doyle somehow yeah. managed to inject in there. It he was did, kind of like almost like a, a white guilt almost in a way about his character. Yeah, there's there's there is a bit of that, and that is very uh, romantic colonialist writing too. Like have sympathy for the native. Uh, let me tell you his story. So you know he deserves a good cup of tea and a Christian <laughs> Bible. Like there's that there's that type of thing going on here. I'll just read a bit of that. Tonga, for that was his name, was a fine boatman and owned a big roomy canoe of his own. Wow, his own canoe. <laughs> when I when I found that he was devoted to me and would do anything to serve me, I saw my chance of escape. I talked it over with him. Yeah, how much did he fucking understand? I wonder. Anyway, he was to bring his boat round on a certain night to an old wharf which was never gardened. And then he was to pick me up. 
I gave him directions to have several grounds of gourds of water and a lot of yams, coconuts, and sweet potatoes. <laughs> he was staunch and true, was little Tonga. No man ever had a more faithful mate. At the night, at the night named, he had his boat and his wharf at his wharf, as it chanced. However, there was one of the convict guard down there, a vile Pathan. A Pathan, by the way, is a Hindu term for Afghan, who had never missed a chance of insulting and injuring me. I'd always vowed vengeance, and now I had my chance. It was a fate I'd placed him, I'd placed him in my way that I might pay a debt before. He stood on the bank, blah, blah, and he goes on, he goes, he talks about how he killed this uh, Afghan. But, yeah, there's definitely a romantic element to how we're meant to feel about Tonga, and when he when he dies, it, it's it's kind of funny. Like I, don't, I shouldn't find it funny, but I do. Um, yeah, here we go. I'll just read this bit. Going back a little. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, he, here's here's um, true colonialist fashion. Before we're supposed to cry for Tonga, you know, uh, dry your tears, Africa type stuff, um, or Andaman, if you will. <laughs> Uh, at our hail, the man in the stern sprang up from the deck and shook his two clenched fists at us, cursing the while in a high, cracked voice. He was a good-sized, powerful man, and as he stopped poising himself with legs astride, I could see that from the thigh downward there was but a wooden stump upon the right leg. At the sound of his strident, angry cries, there was movement in the huddled bundle. It straightened itself into a little black man, the smallest I've ever seen, with a great misshapen head and a shock of tangled, disheveled hair. Holmes had already drawn his revolver, and I whipped out mine at the sight of the savage, distorted creature. He was wrapped in some sort of a dark ulster or blanket, which left only his face exposed, but that face was enough to give a man a sleepless night. Never have I seen features so deeply marked with all bestiality and cruelty. His small eyes glowed and burned with a somber light, and his thick lips were writhed black from his teeth, which grinned and chattered at us with half-animal fury. "'Fire if he raises his hand!' said Holmes quietly." Sorry, that wasn't quiet. We were <laughs> we were within a boat's length by this time and almost within touch of the quarry. I could see two of them now as they stood, the white man with his legs far apart, shrieking out curses, and the unhallowed dwarf with his hideous face, his strong yellow teeth gnashing. How could you see fucking yellow teeth from that distance anyway? Uh, from the light of our lantern. It was well that we had so clear a view of him. Even as we looked, he plucked out from under his covering a short round piece of wood like a school ruler and clapped it to his lips. Our pistols rang out together. He whirled round, threw up his arms, and, with a choking kind of cough, fell sideways into the stream. I caught one glimpse of his venomous, menacing eyes amid the white swirls of the water. At the same moment, the wood-legged man threw himself down upon the rudder and put it hard down so his boat made straight for the southern bank. Oh, that's the end of Tonga. But yeah, that's it. Tonga, um, animalistically described complete with the poison darts but it would have been fashionable uh, you know to to do that um i i i don't criticize conan doyle too much for this he wasn't the only writer who was doing it i remember reading a book in university uh one of my ethnography classes called um what was it called the lure of africa by cornelius h Patton, and i remember the title of that uh, because it was open up to any random page and how you know England needed to um, create missions better than the Dutch down in South Africa and these places uh, to cure cure the sickened native from you know the um, right. uh, <clears throat> yeah from from the um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for pagan yeah not just pagan though but um, ah, it slips on my head like you know when you don't believe in uh, the, the Christian God and whatever pagan infidel, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. 
Anyway, yeah, so yeah, Tonga, whatever. Um, he's he is <laughs> he's a monster, right? Yeah, he like, is. He's a monster. I, the fact that, like, that, like, and remember too earlier on when um, they're while, while they're on the chase with Toby, uh, Holmes asks, you know, um, Watson if he brought his revolver, and Watson's like, no, I just brought my stick or whatever, and Holmes like pulling his you know, pulls his, his gun out and goes, I brought mine. I may have to shoot the the uh, the. Uh, the ally or something like that, right? That's right. So Holmes is already making up his mind that this 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 creature has to be put down, basically. I know. And you know what? Toby or not Toby, Tonga may never have another moment like this. So I, I've come across something that on its own could maybe just and would maybe, I suppose, just kind of uh, further characterize the obscurity and the animalistic nature of him because out of context, this doesn't sound like a lot, but I've managed to find a recording of a group of Andaman singers. Now, the Andaman Islands, as Conan Doyle does rightly acknowledge in the text, are quite a, a small, quiet, and they were historically cut off from not just the rest of, um, not just the, rest of the world, but other nations in the Indian Ocean until British colonial rule went and put a um, uh, a prison in on one of them. But anyway, I found this old recording, and it isn't great, but I want to play it anyway. Uh, this is what anthropologists do, you know, we, we find this stuff, we get excited about it. Anyway, uh, this is a group of young mixed uh, Anmanese singers who are from Port, Port Blair, uh, this is about 70 years old now, so I don't think any of them are still alive. Uh, it's just singing some of their traditional music. In, in playing that I'm not belittling um, the memory of Tonga I'm trying to salute him and I realize that's not a great tune but search as I did I found nothing else representative of Andamanese music than that so that recording from 60-70 years ago of <laughs> that's it that's all I could find well Jonathan Small gives you a polite nod in honor of his friend right. fair, fair dues Anyway, uh, let me just finish up my last bits, and then I'll let you you say what you want about the uh, the, the perpetrators. Jonathan Small um, reeks of Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island to me. I'm thinking I'm thinking it's an homage. Like I don't have a problem with that. It's only seven years, like I said a few minutes ago, at the time of writing that Treasure Island had been released, and it's a Scott written uh, wrote both of these stories. So um, Small's first described as a monster and a thief, but. As with Jefferson Hope, we learn to sympathize with him, even though he's a little more monstrous, Jonathan Small, because he does murder um, and acknowledges murdering in cold blood and greed at least twice. Um, he does yeah. have a certain claim to a treasure, even if it was... He has more of a, a claim to the treasure than Sholto does, because he kept a promise to the others uh, in the sign of the four. Um, Major Sholto... Captain Morstan, who met on Blair Island of the Andamans, um, it's ironically, Hopetown. I thought that was quite interesting, given the hope that they were all <laughs> <relying> on. <laughs> yeah. 
yes. became, you know, they became the new necessary alliance. Sholto double crosses everybody, never returns to the islands. This was, I thought, a pretty weak narrative point. Like, who the hell would send this guy off alone trusting, yeah, yeah, I'll bring my shit back. And I'll, uh, once I find this treasure, don't worry, guys, I'll come right back for you. Fuck off. As soon as he goes to the mainland, he's never coming back. Like, these guys are pretty dumb. For a character that I kind of respect, Jefferson, or not Jefferson Hope, Jonathan Small, he makes a pretty dumbass move in letting this guy go off on his own boat. But, of course, yeah. Cap- Captain Morstan has a-, a part in that decision as well. But I thought it was pretty yeah. weak. Uh, which, and you know what's interesting? That gives his sons... Bartholomew and Thaddeus, it gives them a little bit more credit in my eyes that they were trying to do right by Mary, you know, knowing that their father was a total dick. Yes. Well, of course, you don't you don't know how much they actually knew about their father. Um, anyway, their, their father, obviously, on his deathbed, tried to do the right thing and acknowledge the entitlement to this part of the treasure. Um, that Morstan and his daughter had and whatnot. But anyway, look, I would I would maybe score a little bit higher, but I just felt like Jonathan Small, as cool as he was and as exciting as he was, he wasn't as uh he was he wasn't quite as developed in a sensible motive as Jonathan Hope. Like I, I liked the love and the sense of responsibility that was flying through Jonathan Hope or Jefferson Hope more than Jonathan Small. I felt mm-hmm. like he was a bit too much like a pirate character that we'd already seen before, and uh, he, maybe he was more exciting at the time. Morstan seemed a pretty cool guy. I would have liked to see more of him, but we didn't get him. I gave the um, perpetrators overall, I gave him a mark of 3.5. Uh, Tonga was interesting, but he's certainly not unique. In literature, uh, being James Bond, the James Bond henchman, if you think about it, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So maybe he was a little bit more unique than I'm giving credit for, but yeah, whatever. I went 3.5, uh, decent mark, but no, Jonathan Small didn't light my fire the way that I was hoping he would, and the way I think he probably did for you. Yeah, I'm 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 agreeing with you on that. Um, going back to like we talked about Tonga already. And yeah, definitely a bit of a racist caricature, but that was normal for the times. Um, I liked his loyalty to Small, and I kind of wish that he was. There was a bit more moments of his character. There was kind of a sadness to him, the white guilt, as I said. Um, Small himself, um, I, I liked that he was a bit more of a of a perp, more so than John than Jefferson Hope was. But he, as again, he was definitely a, um, a John, a Long John Silver kind of homage here, in, in effect, and. Um, I think that kind of took some of the mystique out of his character. And also, even his attempts to kind of... I did like the ambiguity of Small, of where he thought he was a noble man doing the right thing, but we could tell as a reader. And so the, just, just to the react... They even mentioned, you know, Holmes and Anthony Jones and then reacting to, like, the terrible morals of this man, you know, when he thinks that he is being honorable in his own kind of way. I found that kind of interesting in terms of how they were portrayed him in the last part of, of the storyline. But as a whole, he was pretty flat villain in, in in my respect. And he wasn't even really fearsome in the end. Tonga did all the work. So it took some of the, it robbed point. some of the, I think, the awe effect of his character. And even and again, the real villain of the story, if you think about it, is Sholto. Mm, yeah, he's the guy. I, who's, I, I, he's the yeah. guy who started all this, all this shit, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he was the guy that stole the treasure, and then 
be screwed his sons over because of it too, because of his actions and and screwed his friend Mar- his friend um, uh, Morstan. Yeah, Captain Morstan over, and then Mary over in in connection to that, and it ends up with with Small being captured and Tom and, and Small's friend being killed. So he's the father of all this evil that's going on in the storyline, in my opinion. So Sholto comes out to me. Um, uh, <laughs> Major Sholto comes out as the big villain, you know, the weak guy with the gambling debt, and a lot more interesting than Small. If there was more, uh, I guess, um, introspection to his character, but there really wasn't. So I found that. Conan Doyle wanted to have a larger life villain, but in the end, he kind of had a villain in there, but he didn't quite use him as strongly as he could. So that's why I don't give this a four, even. I, I'm staying at 3.5 for the uh, perpetrators. I'm surprised to hear you go with me on that. I thought you would have liked them a little bit more than me, but cool. Okay, that's that's great. Um, let's keep this moving along. Um, yes. We both went 3.5 for that. So now let's talk about the environs. We've got a lot of... Small locations within and without London and the area. I mean, if you, not just uh, Pondicherry Lodge and Pynchon Lane, but we've got the wharfs and the docks. And during the boat chase, there's a reference to all kinds of places along the Thames River. Um, we have, of course, Agra and we have the Andaman Islands, which for all of their importance aren't really described. Uh, Agra is, and the fort certainly is, but... The Andaman Islands aren't really described in, in much detail. No. Um, I did like, though, like some of the locations are standout. And the Thames boat chase is, is really, really cool. Um, actually, you'll find this quite interesting, I hope. I managed to um, find a recording of the actual music that was being played during the boat chase. Nice. Yeah, that's um, from the boat chase on the River Thames. Uh, It was just something that was recently uncovered in Arthur Conan Doyle's collected uh, letters and uh, personal items. Right. So for the people at home there, that was uh, George Martin's score for uh, Live and Let Die, the boat chase sequence in that James Bond film. <laughs> it, it was, yes. It, it was. It was. But um, it's funny that you mentioned that, though, because in both instances, and we go back into this racist colonial literature uh, specter that we can't seem to get rid of here, but in both cases, a white guy was pursuing a black person. <laughs> oh, shit. You're right. <laughs> Damn, how much Western chase music do you think has been written? Um, whites chasing blacks. Going all the way into the modern police procedural, my friend. <laughs> oh, man. Well spotted. Um, embarrass- <laughs> embarrassingly so, but well spotted. Yeah, I, I, sorry, I, I, I had to ruin your sardonic moment there just for the sake of that fact alone. No, that's fine. Um, also, much- fun fact, Roger Moore did portray Sherlock Holmes at one point, so that could have almost happened. So <laughs> He did, that's right, yeah. Um, and I did check that out, by the way. Um, <laughs> Josh sent me this link, uh, um, Sherlock Holmes in New York, and the first scene is Roger Moore in some pretty ridiculous latex makeup as he's, uh, as he's confronting Moriarty, 
Um, and then he rips off his mask and he's like, it says, I, Sherlock Holmes. And the rest of the, trust me, the rest of the show um, lived up to that standard. Yeah. Interesting. You got that famous um, British French uh, actress, uh, Charlotte Rampling, who's known mm. for being like kind of like Helen Mirren as like one of the older, uh, I guess, bells of cinema the, the, these days. She played Irina Adler uh, in it, uh, who was a well-known Holmes femme fatale that we'll encounter down the road. But I just found like Roger Moore and from watch from that, like he made a comment, I think at one point where he said that like he was not a great actor. And there are moments where I will defend Roger Moore in terms of some scenes that he does in the Bond films, you know, that were actually quite good acting. But that Sherlock Holmes portrayal was not the case at all. No, I, I don't think it's fair to say uh, Roger Moore is not a great actor. I agree with that. Roger Moore, but he's a good actor, but he's not, yes, a, ver- exactly he's not a versatile actor. Like he brought Simon Templar to his Sherlock Holmes and he modified <laughs> his Simon Templar for uh, an edgier, more more dynamic James Bond character. But no, he he does more... Like, the one film, actually, Roger Moore really... It's called The Man Who Haunted Himself. That was that was probably the most standout performance that Moore's ever done in his career because it required him to be introspective. And, like... Anyway, I'm not going to go on about it, but uh, I think that's one that he favored himself, too, if I recall from his uh, autobiography. Anyway, yeah, but, about Roger But for those Moore. at home who want to explore the Sherlock Holmes... Uh, <laughs> pop cultural you know miasma that exists there i do definitely recommend that movie just watch some of it on youtube just for a larf if, yeah, if anything it is. yeah it's, it's entertaining i watched it uh between the hours of 4 4 30 and 6 a.m uh, thursday when i couldn't uh, get back to sleep uh, anyway <laughs> awesome yeah awesome um what else was I going to say? Oh, I do actually have a nice piece of music, a proper nice piece of traditional Indian music that I'd like to play, and I'll and I'll, um, I'll add it into the show at the end in okay. post. Uh, Moving, uh, called Agra, to... so I'll play that later. Okay, great, great. So yeah, I wish Agra the Fort was definitely described. And again, this is when I kind of wish we had kind of like a Jefferson Hope side story here, where we could have seen you know the Andaman Islands and. And, and and Agra and that whole storyline told in detail because I think that would have been I think I'm wondering somewhere if you know if Doyle had wanted to do that originally and he did have a manuscript of it I would love to read that if it did exist you know that whole storyline mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like just because you think of the storyline you know like it's almost like it's like a Thackeray novel if you think about it because you have um, a British officer has a uh, young British uh, sorry a young a young a poor British man gets in you know middle class perhaps not fully educated, gets into a, a situation where a woman, um, he dishonors in some fashion or he, or he, ha- or most likely he gets her pregnant. And then that, and so he has to be shooed away. Right. And so then he has it, then he joins up and goes to the war, goes to India, tries to find himself, then loses his leg to a crocodile. And, you know, and then he has to basically survive and live that way and live all the way up to this point. And I think a, a kind of a, almost like a an alternate novel of, of the sign of four through Jonathan Small's perspective would actually, would actually be quite 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 entertaining actually it would be yeah that's that's what I think but that's by the by I understand like yes I said, it, it really is ago, the first person but, but, makes sense for the story oh it does it does um, but again I... it, 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 but, but, but it's fun to wonder what was and what could be mm-hmm hmm. Look, before I give you my mark, I'd like to read something I think we're both quite fond of, which are, and for me personally, as much as I like the Agra stuff and I like the foreign flavor of the story, 
it's the London scenes that I think he hits on the the head of the nail here. Even if they're inspired by a post office map, I don't particularly care. It was a September it was a good post office map. It's a, it's a, it was a good one. It was very detailed. It was very detailed. It was a September evening, not yet seven o'clock, but the day had been a dreary one, and a dense, drizzly fog lay low upon the great city. Mud-colored clouds drooped sadly over the muddy streets. Down the strand, the lamps were but misty splotches of diffused light, which threw a feeble, circular glimmer upon the slimy pavement. The yellow glare from the shop window streamed out into the steamy, vaporous air and threw a murky, shifting radiance across the crowded thoroughfare. There was, to my mind, something eerie and ghost-like in the endless procession of faces which flitted across these narrow bars of light, sad, and sad faces and glad, haggard and merry. Like all humankind, they flitted from the gloom into the light and so back into the gloom once more. I'm not subject to impressions, but the dull, heavy evening with the strange business upon which we were engaged combined to make me nervous and depressed. I like hmm. I like that description of London and the streets and uh, the environs, really, I guess more broadly. And I like the later reference to the pocket lantern. And there, there is sort of a, a tangible thickness to the environment. And I don't know how much of it has been inherited from his appreciation of other stories and writers like Dickens. Uh, but Dickens, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're more well-read than I am. He didn't really celebrate in this type of exposition, did he, about the city itself? It kind of like the city was a character, but it came to life through the characters of the stories more than it did like direct exposition of like pavement and stuff. What are you saying, that Dickens didn't have exposition? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm actually, saying, no. Dickens does go into detail in a description a lot of, of what life was like then and the visuals of London as well. I don't think he romanticized a lot of the visuals, though, when it, when it came to them. There was a lot of political and theoretical ideas that he put into the description that lacked kind of like, I guess, the the artistic flourish that, you know, that Conan Doyle is putting here. So, mm. but I, I think that, could, that that is definitely something that could be uh, art, debated and almost found evenly on both sides in terms of the different authors and uh, I think both of them were very good at portraying in, in, environs, but uh -huh. 100% is that to Gordon Conan Doyle is trying to establish a, a mystique, an atmosphere, a mystery here, mm -hmm. and those kind of descriptions help create that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas Dickens was telling stories mainly through characters, so you I might get like three or four, that. you know, you'll get three or four pages of exposition of just like where they are, and then after that you'll get like 200 pages of people just like talking you know and uh mm -hmm. and just weird things ha ha happening in a dickens novel i know that's a terrible uh summary of what a dickens novel is like no it, of course it isn't i know it isn't um, but i've only and, read a handful myself so i defer to yeah. you on on those questions of exposition of, of setting because i i don't know as much yeah. um but i just don't but, recall, but to go back to the call as many yeah but to go back to the point though there are some great moments of description of locale and and, and environs in 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 in, in Dickens, so I will argue that point on that merit. Okay, I went four out of five for environments here, which is, considering how I've talked about some of these other features, maybe a little surprising, a little, a little generous, but I really liked the Thames River, I like London in this story more, I loved Utah, like the foreign land doesn't impress me as much as it did in the uh, yes. studying Scarlet, but I really liked London here more, I went four out of five I, I feel my gut's telling me that's too generous, but I went four out of five because I was interested in the places I saw. 
Absolutely. I, I, I went for because just because of how well L London was described and, 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 and how it's it's it, how it's adding to the world building that's going on here. You know, we have like you mentioned the McMurdo incident. Right. And we also have like, you know, 221B Baker Street and how the streets and lanes are all like these arteries of the city that homes use it mm -hmm. to traverse and going along the Thames. You have Pondicherry Lodge and all the locales and how they're just basically grounding to reality, you know, the, the story that we're, that we're reading. And I think, and even going to like Sherman's, uh, uh, the, uh, animal stuffer, sorry, not the stuffer, the, uh, naturalists, uh, mm -hmm. um, establishment and, and whatnot. Yeah. And, uh, more, and, and Mordecai, uh, Smith's, uh, uh, steamer renter, uh, operation. It, 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 it's just like, there's all those little details there. That's me just really flush out the world. And the environs of London just come to great life in this tale. But again, as you said, the agra, this, the, the foreign soils, I guess, tale, uh, part of, this, of, the, of the narrative that we were becoming, to, of the formula, sorry, that we've been uh, expected to um, uh, encounter, uh, you know, after reading a study in Scarlet, I think it fell short in this one. And for some great vistas and visuals in our heads, you know, given through the words that Conan Doyle presents to us, I think they fall short in that respect. So that's why I only go with a four in this case. All right. Because um, well, London was just so strong to me and, 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 in, and in creating the atmosphere of the world of Sherlock Holmes that that's why I give it a four as opposed to like a 3.5 or something like that. All right, well, I'm going to give you the last word overall here, Josh, because we're going to finish lighting our pipes here or we're going to have our last puff, if you will, on the secondary and supporting characters and players of a story. We've got Mary Morstan, who's an attractive, engaging female character, despite her cliché distress, and it is cliché, I think. Um, yes. Ne necessary for moving the plot forward a little, uh, certainly for bringing Watson face-to-face -face with love and all of his misspent adolescence. Um, Athelney Jones, uh, he's less up himself than Lestrade or Gregson, but he's not particularly standout. He's shown to be a man of his word, though, capable of making some right calls, even if by mistake, uh, because he gets Bartsholo's steward and servant. Um, in the initial arrest. The Baker Street Irregulars, Holmes' faith in them I really liked in the story. Holmes says uh, in, in response to Watson's query about, you know, will they find the boat, quote, if the launch is above water, they'll find her. They can go everywhere, see everything, overhear everyone, end quote. They are his eyes and his ears when he's not out on the streets. Uh, I like that little relationship, and I, I think that, that feeds nicely into how he is known in parts uh, sometimes sketchy parts of London, you know, like his name resonates with some people and some classes. And, and I think that's really cool. So the mystery of the Irregulars and how they work as a team. Uh, and it's also very colonial too, this idea that you have your own scout troop running around doing stuff for you, you know, like I, I think that yes. kind of matches in with the macro framing of the story and of the times and, you know, late Victorian um, London. So yeah, I, I liked it. Uh, but Nothing really super there. I went 3.5 myself. I know there were other minor supporting casts that really color the story up, but um, I don't think um, I don't think McMurdo for all of his function or um, what's the guy's the, name? The uh, Schulte brothers. The Sh yeah, they were they were all right, but I I I I, I, I thought, contained I them. I, I call them perpetrators. Like to me, they were more like they were involved. The Schulte brothers were Schulte. all right. Major Schulte was, but but I found that the Schulte brothers were, were were not though. I don't know. No, well, they, okay, fair enough. I, I like Thaddeus. I thought he was cool. He had a real uh, genuineness to him, but um, Bartholomew not so much. He died anyway before we got to do anything with him. And 
Uh, yeah. He he was he was feverish. He was certainly febrile, Thaddeus. But um, no, sorry, man. Like, not sorry to you. Just I can't go above three point five for the supporters in the story. I don't think that there was anybody you know that deserves more than a seventy percent for me. Yeah, I, I would me. say. Yeah, I I, I I agree with you. I, I I'm kind of wavering between yeah, three point five and four, just because like I did like that I did like the Sholto brothers, Thaddeus in particular. I thought he was a good character. I, I found that even Major Sholto was kind of an ambiguous background character that was a great influential force on everything, and he stood out to me. Um, we did we done the perpetrators Hope and Tonga, and so they don't really count in that respect. Anthony Jones seems kind of like a a little more of a more respectable. Uh, more ge- more generous and and you know willing to admit that he was wrong kind of kind of guy compared to like you know Lestrade and Gregson were, um, but at the same time and Mary herself you say that she's a cliche and I keep wondering I mean this is the I per- the ideal I you know you know iconic image of of a woman coming into Sherlock Holmes office you know with a problem right and, you know and is she the cliche or is she the progenitor of the cliche, you know what I mean? Um, um, I don't know. I'm not well versed enough to say for sure whether she is indeed the very first woman who goes into a detective's office. Maybe, maybe she's a progenitor. Um, yeah, maybe it but... would be interesting to read like some of the French ones that like Lecoq or whatever, or even like yeah. um, Pose uh, Dubin, yeah, or yeah, yeah, Pose, yeah, exactly, or reading even uh, like Wilkie Collins, right, and just comparing to see if. Um, the similar structure is there. You know what I mean? Like, is there okay, any comparison? Okay, fair enough. But I would still argue my point that e- even if she is a progenitor of these female roles, it, it, that's, that's the function in the story. That's not her character. Her character yeah. needs to be needs to be more than just showing up and starting I, I agree. something new. It's true. And it's, I think it's too is because of, I think the, the they're in, this, in the Sherlock Holmes myth, uh, in the popular mythology that exists not for not per se the actual textual mythology of it mary morrison is a much prominent character um in the two sherlock holmes films that guy Ritchie filmed mary uh mary morrison is a prominent character uh she's even a prominent character on the series sherlock now so she's taken her own pop cultural version of herself and and, and is a lot it's a lot different and uh, and and then of course, if you, and then, but in this book here, she's just basically a barely functioning character, and not even a not, and I said subplot, not even a subplot really, um, because there's there's no real uh, build up to that relationship at all, except Watson finds her pretty and he That's right, feels yeah. sorry for her, and she said he's but I guess it's symbolic of him trying to find light in the darkness and all the fog and and everything, and whereas. Holmes prefers the fog because he goes right into the fog of uh, narcotics, you know. Indeed. B- b- by the end of it, you know. Mm. And I want to mention again too that adaptation that they did in the '80s about uh, the sign of four, the the the, uh, the masterpiece theater one. Mary Morrison it takes place in it, but Watson does not marry her at the end. In fact, there is no romantic relationship whatsoever implied there. And she come and she, her character actually in that adaptation comes off as a stronger character because of it, because yeah, she's working yeah, she... with Holmes and Watson, trying to solve the, the mission of her father, and that kind of made her an agency. And I found that really interesting. I suppose so they, had to, they had to home, modernize her as well. Oh, they, I said, they a little they bit, felt yeah. A desire to modernize her. I mean, they they were trying to do the full period piece thing. They wanted to make her at least a woman of 
of the age of that, that women would be interested in. I don't see a lot of women reading this book and being interested in Mary Morstan. No, definitely not. They're probably like thinking about like Holmes or something like that, right? Well, they're they're not they're not, getting, they're not getting a strong yeah, or, or, female or, or. character. That that's what I'm trying to say with her. They don't get a strong oh, yes, female I know. character. I'm, with I'm her. joking with you. I'm oh, joking oh, with sorry, you. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely not like a, a strong female character to identify with, like you would like say in Dickens, like like you know like Little Dorrit or something like that, right? Or even in these in these other adaptations of this story, like you're citing the masterpiece yeah. theater thing. Like there's there's no. There's not a female character in here, and maybe, maybe that's a time thing. It's a context thing that you can really take away and enjoy. Or if you're a woman, I don't think, or a girl, or even a man wanting to respect like a woman, like yeah, she's okay, but she doesn't do anything. She she shows no, exactly. up. Gets, she motivates the plot, and that's necessary. All stories need that motivation, and she becomes the love interest. And she's she's nice. She's a friendly. She's a seems clever, yeah. and and Holmes likes the fact that she's intelligent. And in places, you know, he calls her. Uh, because of the notes she took and saved the the map that she found in her dad's um, belongings, he refers to her as an intelligent, ideal client. You know, so I mean, yeah, he's trying to make her um, a, a good figure, but ultimately, she she's just necessary to get things moving and then to to get to get Watson involved so that um, he uh, Holmes rather be, becomes more defined. Anyway, I'm that I got nothing else to say, but I went three point five. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to stay at my 3.5 on this too, actually, when it comes to the characters. Okay, cool. Well, uh, doing the totals up then, you and I are the same on everything except for... Yeah, we're the same on everything except for Investigation, which you liked a 0.5 more than me. So <laughs> that's uh, a total of, for you, Josh, that's 9, and 4 is 13, and 7 is 20. You're at 20 out of 25, and I am at 19.5. All right, so, so 4.5 from for, for my investigation over your four, right? That's it, yep. There you go, buddy. Uh, that's us coming to the end of our uh, second episode here in Lighting the Pipes. And why don't you say something about the collection we've got coming up? So we're going to be dealing with the first short story collection of uh, Sherlock Holmes, the, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, uh, beginning with uh, the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, one of the most famous Sherlock Holmes stories, um, and once we go, mostly for the introduction of the uh, famous femme fatale Irina Adler, uh, as well as other stories in this in, in this uh, collection that will bring more and more into of uh, bring more and more of the Sherlock Holmes world to us. So I'm looking forward to this, and I think it'll be interesting in terms of like, we're going to be basically be like doing like kind of like analysis for each different story. So we'll have to find out. Uh, I'll have to find some way of like. Of some kind of scoring system, alternative to pipes in a way. It's almost like a like, I think we'll be smoking a lot of pipes during that episode. <laughs> we, yeah, we we most likely will be, but I don't know that we have to change our scoring system. I remember we no, came, we we had the same problem right. with the short stories in Ian Fleming's collection, and we were worried that we might have to do something different. But we we ultimately never had to. Yeah, like I think in this one here, there's a total of how many short stories in this one? There's. I'm not sure. And behind the scenes, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we can always decide whether we want to split this over a few episodes too. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, we'll decide. So there's a total of twelve. There's a total of twelve short stories in here. So mm-hmm. that should um, be enough to kind of decide what we're going to do for the strategy. It'll be exciting regardless, and it'll be interesting to see how Holmes functions on a. And little vignettes and little pocket-sized bites, I suppose you could say. Yeah, well, you know, if you listen to the critics 
and you listen to those who talk of his popularity, it really happened with the stories that were published in the Strand. Those are the ones that really marked his fame, if you think of it, and made him a household name. These first two novels were good. Uh, they were critically well-received, but they weren't massive sellers. He wasn't yet a phenomenon, even with the publication of The Sign of the Four. So uh, it's with the stories that his reputation builds. That's right. Um you said it better than, than I could. So from there on, um, we got the sign of four done or the sign of four or whatever the heck you call it. Uh, I think uh, we got we got upon the, the fine points and a lot of agreeance overall in, in, in many things, a couple of, of you know, taste differences. And, and but at the same time, I think regardless of, of our tastes, we still fell upon the same scoring. So that was interesting. Yeah, we didn't really disagree in any massive way. I think we both agree that the sign of the four is a good story. Uh, a solid adventure with Holmes being better developed than he was in the first one, even if um, Do Doyle's decision to make it more of a chase and capture story um, let down the depth of the villain a little bit, or the perpetrator in uh, Jonathan Small. But yeah, it, it was good. Uh, listen, before, before, we, before we leave here, there's something that I came across that um, I, I was just kind of wondering at, like, 1889 the book was written we've got this motorboat chase on, oh, the, yes. on, on the thames river and i couldn't help but wondering like how long where the little die music came from where could they <laughs> where could the the, the the music be some some speakers hidden somewhere on along the along the east bank or something or yeah i, I it's the magic really it's magic i don't know how it happened but uh, <laughs> it, it got me it got me wondering about about uh, motors in boats and exactly how long had they been around and it was remarkable. I think that Conan Doyle may very well have written the first, or if not one of one of the first, if not the first book or story featuring a motorized boat chase. And the reason I say that is because the first successful motorboat uh, was marketed, released, manufactured by Priestman Brothers from Hull in England in 1888. Even though the idea, oh. even though the idea. Uh, came from uh, a German firm, Gottlieb and Maybach, in 1886. It wasn't until 1888 that England had manufactured motorboats. And here we have the uh, our Scotland Yard in possession of at least one mechanized or motorized boat. And I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there might be gaps in this research, but the dates aren't wrong. Priestman Brothers started to manufacture them uh, for public purchase in 1888 and this book came out in 1890 i can't think there were a lot of writers who were talking about no. motorboats at that time so this minus is jules verne <laughs> the uh the uh, nautilus exactly but this is a great example of how uh, conan doyle as a victorian writer was just soaking up you know the changes in culture and technology around him and and taking risks and implementing them in his story and i, I really like that yeah, for sure. And it kind of goes with Holmes kind of ironically because, you know, Holmes being like, well, with all these different theories, like Copernican theory, you're not really used to him and do what he does. But at the same time, the world around him grows and grows and he adapts to it to, to what he needs to do. So, you know, like in the modern age, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, that he would be all up for like uh, DNA evidence and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Might put him out of business, actually. <laughs> it, it could put him out of business, but... You know, maybe that's something I'll look into uh, a little finer detail to see if I'm missing any points there, because maybe maybe the police have had some sort of a um, uh, a trademark on uh, on a similar thing that wasn't really considered a motorized boat. But 
anyway, there you go. So let's plant that seed and see where it grows, and maybe we can find more uh, examples of technology from the time period that were brand new and uh-huh. and, and, and or, or or seem very brand new for the time, anyways. Yeah, because there's so much explosive uh, development, you know, in science and technology, not just during this time, but um, in the years leading up to it, and uh, certainly the 20th century. So as as the Holmes stories evolve and Doyle as a writer evolves, let's see if he borrows from popular culture and uh, yeah, and, and technology or engineering because he seems to be very interested in that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And as good uh, as good readers, v- uh, vigilant readers, uh, we will watch carefully and observe, observe and, and deduce. Right, well, we look forward to it. Well, uh, until next time, buddy, uh, it's been fun and I'll see you back here again. Uh, for another episode of Lighten the Pipes. Well said.